At the end of her career, Marilyn Monroe, leaving one last marriage behind, found herself dependent on barbiturates and the two people in her life who facilitated the addiction, her psychiatrist and her housekeeper. These two individuals lived through the actress in different ways, and at a point where she was strong enough to finally cut them off, they might have chosen to prevent that from happening. What happened to Marilyn Monroe on August the 4th, 1962, and who, if anyone, is responsible for her premature death? Detective Unit, you know what time it is. It's time for part two on Marilyn Monroe's story, where I put you into the other two points of view that I promised last time, and we finish the story of her life. And then in part three, we're gonna be focusing on the coroner's report, the inquest, what I and the author of the book that is behind me, Donald Spoto, believe actually happened, and then on to the conspiracy theories through the ages. So the way I thought of structuring part three is to keep the same style of giving you the context and then putting you into the point of view as somebody else. There, I still haven't decided whose point of view I'll be pointing you towards and I will be putting you into, but for now, I definitely know where we are going in part two. In order for this part of the story to make complete sense, I would suggest watching almost three hours of part one. I know, and I'll try to keep this one shorter than part three. Even shorter than that, because Jesus. But there's so much. There's so much to cover, and I really want you to understand the psychology of these people. So, if you, for some reason, don't want to rewatch part one, or have already watched it, but are like, Maya, give us a recap, let me walk you through the recap of part one, and I promise this will be super short, like two minutes, let's, let's time it. Put the timer on me, put the timer on me, at least, at best two minutes. Let's go. Recap of part one and then straight into part two, straight into the story of the day. So to recap part one, we have spoken about Norma Jean. And she was brought up by people who did everything to exploit her, for one or the other reason. They wanted something from her and saw her as a meal ticket. She was brought up in a foster care and then an orphanage without stable parental figures, which left her in a constant search of a father figure, which she will apply to how she chose the man that she dated. She will rise to stardom in sometimes not the most orthodox ways by doing what needed to be done, including posing nude and pretending that her mom was dead, until both of those scandals did catch up with her. As for how she coped with the intense amount of movies and photo shoots that she did, she developed a dependency on sleeping pills and barbiturates, which at the point where we left it off already lasted for about five years, the dependency on the sleeping pills. She would get married three times, and we left the story off on her last marriage to the playwright Arthur Miller, and with Marilyn leaving Hollywood. Rather, keeping it on the side and keeping studio jobs on the side in order to start her own production company and make her own movies. So, where we left the story off was in 1959, and as we spoke about in part one, the marriage to Arthur Miller was already on the rocks, mostly because Miller 
kind of started resorting to controlling Marilyn. He would do it in different ways than maybe Natasha and anybody else, but he eventually started just showing up to her set and being basically the shadow of hers, like always advising her on what she should do better. And he really didn't have much to do with directing, with production, with anything to do with movies. He was a writer, he was a playwright. This means that by the end of 1959, Marilyn started working on a musical comedy called Let's Make Love. This would be one of the many productions that she would just accept because of her deal with Fox, because she still wanted to do more movies, more musical comedies, more things for them, while she was breaching out and trying to leave Hollywood and have her own production company. In short, this film's production would always be delayed because of Marilyn's frequent absences from set, whether it was to do with the dependency on drugs or her other health conditions that we will speak about in this parter. But even just if you remember from part one, Marilyn did have three pregnancies that ended up in a termination, two miscarriages, and then one pregnancy that couldn't really go through due to other issues. And here we're gonna speak about like her gallbladder removal in this part and endometriosis. And it's just a lot of health issues that this woman had had through her life that are really, really just neglected. And I really did not like representation in any single documentary that I have watched on Marilyn because of this, so I have to point it out, because she was always presented as somebody who would turn up late to the set, would call in sick. And when you think about it, how I ended part one, with just her being on set for over seven years in total, not including anything else, why wouldn't she? If she needed to call in sick, if she wanted to be in a hospital, like to be hospitalized for her drug dependency, or if she needed to go through an operation about something as serious as her gallbladder, as the endometriosis kind of surgery, she had all the right to do so. It's just very much neglected compared to her drug dependency, and I get why, but it just shines her in a completely different light to how I have seen her after reading this book and just after researching it online as well. I don't think that Marilyn was a diva whatsoever. In fact, like, she would try to do everything, including using other drugs, including using the drugs that would then contradict and, like, counteract the sleeping aids that she was using and the sleeping pills in order to actually show up on set, in order to do everything to be there. And that's the side that I just don't see represented on Marilyn. So I just wanted to point that out. Because from the most sources between 1959 and 62, so all the way up until her death, she will be seen as somebody really difficult to work with. Somebody who sometimes wouldn't show up on set, who would have many absences, who would always be late. It just seemed like she wasn't really dependent from people's perspective. And I get it when you are... 20th Century Fox, when you are a big production company, you're losing money. And that is eventually going to catch up with Marilyn. I just wanted you to have both sides of that story, as to why she was missing shoots, and then how that could potentially affect a production company. 
Let's Make Love was released in September of 1960, and it is said that Marilyn had an affair with a co-star called Eve Montand, and that this was, yes, an affair because of how Arthur Miller was acting, because she kind of knew that marriage is over, but it was also a publicity stunt as well. However, despite all the publicity, this musical comedy just wasn't doing well. Marilyn was described as appearing rather untidy and lacking the old Monroe dynamism. And that brings us to the very last movie that she will finish, that she will be in, and that one would be called Misfits. So if you remember it's part one, I mentioned how Marilyn read a praise for Arthur Miller's screenplay called Misfits under the same name, and she was just quite interested in it. And for Arthur, this was finally, going back into his point of view, representation of how he saw Marilyn, rather how he thought she would want to be seen by the world. So let me just briefly give you a synopsis of what The Misfits is, and maybe you can spot immediately a couple of red flags as to why this should have never gone into production. Misfits was supposed to be based in Nevada, where 30-year-old Rosalind files for a quick divorce from her inattentive husband. Rosalind's landlady takes her to a cocktail lounge for drinks. There, they meet this aging cowboy called Gaylord and his best friend, and Rosalind and Gaylord make friends, eventually they start seeing each other, they move in together, and one day Gaylord tells Rosalind how he wishes he were more of a father to his children, whom he has not seen in years. Later, he discovers that rabbits have been eating the lettuce in the garden that they have planted, and he wants to kill the rabbits with a shotgun, an idea that Rosalind would, of course, oppose to. So just a couple of things on the top of your head. Divorce, men speaking about not being great fathers, pets being shot, a couple of triggers that if you listen to part one, would have triggered Marilyn, whichever character name you give her. Rosalyn, Marilyn, whatever you call it, this would be quite the trigger for her. Another thing, if you just listen to that synopsis, you might think, well, nothing really happens, does it? And that is truly the definition of how Miss Sweets work. Nothing really happened. People just wandered about, they went to bars, they drank too much, they drove through the desert. And that wasn't the only problem. The problem here with Misfits was that Miller changed the script every single day. And he did it in such a way in order for it to fit Marilyn, to portray her character, Rosalyn, as an accurate representation of who Marilyn was. So, in the beginning, I truly think when he actually started Misfits and based off of the book in 1957, he was a man in love. Maybe Rosalind was based off of Marilyn, but it was quite a different character than what would actually be portrayed on the screen. In 1957, he was a man who was in love with his wife, he was touched by her emotional alliance with nature, her love of children and animals, her appreciation of gardening, of flowers, her general sensitivity to life, of which he saw her as a right representative. By 1960, his attitude towards her was just completely different. The Misfits would reveal Arthur's real feelings towards Marilyn to the whole world in black and white, but Marilyn was one who had to present them, who had to convey them. 
Arthur would give Roslyn dialogue that was straight from the story of Marilyn Monroe, from childhood to her divorce from Joey DiMaggio and her meeting with an older man with whom she was to have a future, himself, Arthur Miller. The unfinished house in Nevada was to be reflecting of Arthur and when they moved into the unfinished house together, and then slaughter of the dog meat, slaughter of the rabbits, slaughter of any pets really in this movie, again was to portray Marilyn's event from the childhood when her dog was killed by the neighbor when she was young. So how do we think this actually worked? We are in the point of view of Arthur Miller. Every single day, and not just day, but usually he would do this by the end of the day, you know, he would just be on set, see how Marilyn portrayed this role of Roslyn, wouldn't like it whatsoever, and then he would just rewrite the whole script and then give it to her in the evening, which would, of course, cause insane amount of stress to her. Because he would either give it to her in the evening, so she already struggled sleeping, she's going to, like, read the script, have, like, a boost of anxiety, then use even more sleeping pills than she would have, wake up all groggy, you know, not knowing her lines, try to appear on set and try to be professional, or he would give it to her in the morning, he just pass her on the script like in the morning, last minute, again. She's just waking up after this overdose of sleeping pills, feeling completely groggy, having to snap out of it, and now learn who she was supposed to portray over and over again. This never allowed for the character of Roslyn to be realized. She wanted him to make Roslyn the whole character, with speeches, not just mumbles and declamations, and the character never being realized, meaning that he just never gave it to her. He was always unbending over it. Going back to what I said the last time, he thought she wanted to be seen in this way. So him changing the script in the light of his feelings meant that she would get emotional. She would smartly so realize that this is based off of her life and that this isn't how she wanted to be presented, that she couldn't bear what happened to her role, that this is how the world is going to see her. So by early August, everybody on the shoot knew that these two were barely speaking. They wouldn't even go to the shoots together and it was said that they already moved into the separate rooms of their shared suit. And Arthur also started having an affair with the photographer that was on sets, making The Misfits the most apt title for the last movie that Marilyn ever made. What he would say later about the movie is, I have not really helped her as an actress. I never really know exactly what's expected of me. To add insult to injury, really, by midsummer, by this point when Arthur is having an affair, she's having an affair, and they are just trying to go through this movie, they're just trying to finish it. Marilyn was also in agony because she had such severe abdominal pains. Her ability to digest food was already impaired, and she was sick every single day. And here is yet again where I will point out something that I don't see pointed out before. Because at this point, they're still living together. And Arthur and Marilyn have been married since 56, if I remember right. So for the majority of her drug dependency, and you will never see that mention, the dynamic between Arthur Miller 
the barbiturates dependency and sleeping pills dependency and Marilyn Monroe. Like, he was her husband. Did he never witness it? Did he never care? He was clearly giving her the scripts and then she would be using sleeping pills to cope. Why is it never mentioned? Did he just never care for her to stop the dependency? For her to get better? Or was he just one of the men that really wanted her under his thumb, that really wanted to be in control of her. And the drugs were just means to an end. The drugs were just one way to control Marilyn. Because when I point you into the point of view of one of the two people today, you will realize that if there's no other way to control Marilyn, there were always drugs. Despite of this, Marilyn would always appear on set. Late, sick, she said, I said I would be there, and she always tried to prove herself as an actress, so she would show up in whatever condition. I watched some videos um, with, like, bloopers, and, like, you can really see it, basically. Like, you know, she would mess up a line, or the co-star would mess up a line, and she said, like, you know, she just, like, immediately snaps out of it, she's like, I'm so sorry, we'll get there. Like, we'll always get there. And, like, you know, usually when people kind of include bloopers into videos and stuff, it's funny. Here, it wasn't even funny. Like, you could see that it really mattered to her. And that this was heavily affecting her life, but she was still really just trying to push through it. But do I feel happy in life? Um, um, let's see. Let's say I hope I'm finding happiness. Right? Well, for me, uh, if I can realize certain things in my work, uh, I come the closest to being happy. And I can say that also about my life. Well, it only happens, I think, in moments, sometimes when I'm working, and, uh, and I'll be able to... Uh, uh, fulfill a scene truthfully, and then I think I'm the happiest. She would say that she was supposed to work six days a week, telling reporters she needed two days to recover. Everyone was always pulling at me, tugging at me, as if they wanted a piece of me. It was always do this, do that, and not just on the job, but off too. God, I've tried to stay intact, whole. To cope with this pressure, pills were flown for Marilyn every other day, supplied by the LA doctors. And this is the only time in the book where I have seen somebody actually address that Arthur Miller was probably privy to her addiction and didn't really care, saying that he knew the doctors had gone along with the demands for new and stronger sleeping pills, even though they knew perfectly well how dangerous this was. That there were always new doctors willing to help her into oblivion. And also that he never intervened. That he would always say, well, I was almost completely out of her life by this point. So basically trying to, like, wash his hands off of just the knowledge of, like, how strong of a doses she was taking. And here we're talking about different doctors than the one that I'm going to put you in the shoes of, but they would write her a prescription for 300 milligrams of Nambutal. 
Nembutal, among other drugs that Marilyn was taking, would be a calming agent. It's usually used to calm you before the surgery, and it is the class of drugs known as barbiturate hypnotics. It works by affecting certain parts of your brain in order to calm you down. However, this would be the doses that she was prescribed each night. And the normal dose for insomnia was the third of that, 100 milligrams, for a maximum of two weeks, after which you develop tolerance to it, and basically the drug isn't effective any longer. And serious poisoning and even death can occur after ingesting anything more than two grams. But we know that Marilyn, whoever she asked, would be willing to just prescribe her anything. And this would be one of the rare prescriptions that we would know of. There are prescriptions that are literally in black and white online by the last two doctors. Rather, one of them would be the prescribing doctor, really. But again, going back to like the medical records, like the early prescriptions just aren't even available to the public. So we don't even know for certain parts of her life what was she even legally prescribed and by whom and by how many doctors. Due to this dependency on drugs, in August of 1960, Marilyn would be hospitalized for two weeks. And this was attributed, from what I have seen in the public, to a breakdown. But everybody on set knew that this was because of the pill dependency. In order for you to understand the dependency on drugs and how it affected her for the past six years at this point, we need to go into the point of view of the person who provided her with them, rather who justified the need for Marilyn to be taking these drugs. And before that, I'm quickly just going to summarize how this drug intake looked like. So what drugs we know she was taking, what effect they had, and also how this looked from the eyes of the observers. And then just have a quick corner on the barbiturates. So we know at this moment in time that Marilyn's dependence on barbiturates and sleeping pills increased even further during the shoot of the Misfits. Her LA doctors would send her stronger drugs, as I mentioned, 300 milligram doses of Nambutal, three times the standard dosage that is used to treat insomnia. And so strong that even seven of these pills would be enough to kill a person without Marilyn's tolerance. But at this point, Marilyn was so dependent on them that we just don't even know how many she was willing to take. When she felt that these weren't enough, she would managed to encourage the doctors to inject amytal directly in quantities that were not far off the administered for general anesthetics. So she would be taking these two medications regularly as calming agents. The drugs that Marilyn was taking were classified as barbiturates. These are the drugs that attack the central nervous system, and they worked as depressant, as sedative hypnotic drugs. In low doses, they help you fall asleep, they have sedative kind of effects, and in higher doses, they can treat issues like anxiety, they would have hypnotic effects. Nembutal, the drug that she was using the most, would be used to treat sleep disorders, epilepsy, traumatic brain injury, and because of it being used to reduce pressure on the skull, sometimes it would also be used in state executions of criminals. Like, she was using the drug that would be used as a calming agent to conduct state executions. And when it comes to Amital, so the thing that she would have injected, 
it's also part of the calming agent, the drugs that could be used as a sedative hypnotic. Both of those drugs, Nembutal and Amital, something that I want to emphasize, aren't used today. They aren't prescribed, they're actually discontinued. Nembutal was discontinued in 1998, and Amital was discontinued in 1980. Both of them were replaced by benzodiazepine family of drugs. So, you can still have them prescribed, but in much smaller doses, and it's much more controlled today. Two things to remember from that quick recap. The drugs that Marilyn was using at the time wouldn't be prescribed to anybody today, because they would mostly be used for anesthetic purposes. And any sort of overdose being done by somebody using this independently, not like a surgeon, not somebody conducting a state execution, would be very easy, especially if you're just letting somebody use this high dosage of drugs, like three times what should have been prescribed to her. So, something that you might have heard, depending on whose account of Marilyn's story you listen to, is how this would look like from the distance. And the main thing that people would say about Marilyn is that she would appear on any sort of function, any sort of award ceremony, it would seem like she was drunk. Whereas Marilyn was not an alcoholic. That's something that she was never famous for, and anybody who actually knew about her drug intake would know that this is how these drugs and the amount that she was consuming would make her appear because of the effect that they would have. The calming agents, they would get her to be slow, to have slurred speech, just different problems with coordinating herself, with motor coordination. She would sometimes stagger, have problems with balance, and also other side effects would be decreases in breathing rate, heart rate, like blood pressure, body temperature, slowed rate of thought. This is why she would take a lot of time in the morning to wake up, to get out of the groggy state. Her makeup artist would say sometimes, you know, she would appear on set and he'd put a makeup on her as she's still lying down, like, trying to wake the hell up. Then, you know, sedation and lethargy and just unconsciousness and problems with reasoning and logic would be other side effects that people who knew Marilyn would say she would display. When you hear about the drugs that she was taking, about their effects, and most importantly about the side effects of these strong drugs and the dosage that was given to her, you would think immediately on top of your head, well, her diagnosis must have called for it. She must have had such a strong diagnosis made by all of these psychiatrists and doctors to justify this kind of drug intake, this kind of dependency, for years and years to come. And this is really twofold. So, first, something that we have busted as a myth in part one is the family history, because that would have called for it, right? Like, if somebody was to look at your family history, realized a lot of people in your family have issues with mental health, have psychosis, okay, maybe they will be more prone to understand that this might be genetics and might be more prone to prescribing those drugs. We have busted that myth last time, where only Marilyn's mom might have had mental health issues. And according to Spoto, really, even her depression might have been due to the triggers and the circumstances, rather than actual mental health diagnosis. 
nobody else in her family had any mental health issues or died from any mental health issues. And then we have the second fold of that part, and that is the lack of diagnosis, complete lack of diagnosis. So something that I have really tried to look for is, yeah, in black and white by one of her psychiatrists, somebody diagnosing her with something. And the doctor we are going to be speaking about in about a couple of minutes, Dr. Ralph Grinson, her psychiatrist would suggest that Marilyn had schizophrenia. It seemed that there were two people inside of her. But if she had a personality disorder, having two personalities, then maybe there is a possibility that one of them would trigger her eventual overdose in order to kill the other personality. Many modern-day psychiatrists, when they researched Marilyn and looked into her history, believe that she suffered from what is known as borderline personality disorder, BPD. And these symptoms would include identity issues, addictive behavior, and also suicidal behavior. This disorder also often appears when adults have suffered abandonment as a child, which we know Marilyn did. So today, when people look into this case, they would say this is a textbook case because of her frantic efforts to avoid any imagined or real abandonment, as we have spoken through her marriages as well, the pattern of unstable and intense relationships that would be kind of characterized by extremes between splitting and idealization of a person, she bounced from relationship to relationship, had free marriages that ended in divorce, and then also identity disturbance that is marked by persistently unstable self-image or just sense of self. She always wanted to prove herself, always wanted to be skinnier, better in this area, in that area. So, that being said, the book never mentions an official diagnosis given to Marilyn at the time, and Ralph Grinson only suggested that she might have schizophrenia. He only kind of put that in passing, even though he was responsible for the amount of medication that she was taking and was her psychiatrist for the past few years of her life. He just seemed like there's no paper mentioning it in black and white, and then, obviously, the second fold of that is that people today, the modern psychiatrists, like, are looking at the history and what we have on Marilyn, thinking, like, okay, this is classic example of what today would have been considered diagnosis. Where I'm driving at is that Marilyn had no diagnosis. There was no justification for her to be taking the medication that she was taking. Ever. Ever. So, what we have are two unofficial diagnoses, two possible diagnoses of Marilyn's mental health issues, and now we have to get into the mind of the person who was behind one of them. We are getting into the point of view of one of the last few people we're going to be talking about, and his name is Dr. Ralph Grinson. Dr. Ralph Grinson, if I were to describe him, would have a savior complex like no other bitch in this story. And he had the kind of attitude of, if I can't have you, no one else can. But not as a lover, not as like somebody super possessive, not kind of like Joey DiMaggio had in some ways, rather as a doctor with a reputation at stake, who saw Marilyn 
as his property, as part of his family in a way, but also as his property where he wanted her completely, completely dependent on him. So that was his point of view, to make Marilyn completely dependent on him. Instead of seeing her as a patient and trying to get rid of her dependency to a doctor and to drugs. You know, when you go to therapy, the goal of the therapy is like after X amount of sessions, you don't need that therapy any longer. No, not in Greenston. He wanted to be her psychiatrist forever, till the end of time. And when he would lose that control, well, we'll see what might have actually happened. The way that Ralph Greenson got into Marilyn's life isn't really certain. So either he came recommended by her lawyer called Milton Rudin, who would actually be his brother-in-law, Greenson's brother-in-law, or by Arthur Miller's friend called Frank Taylor, or by Marilyn's New York psychoanalyst called Marianne Christ that we mentioned in part one that she was seeing around this time. So in August 1960, when Marilyn was flown back to LA for the hospital treatment during her shoot on the Misfits, well, Greenson already started seeing her, and she was visiting him at the Beverly Hills office of his every day of the week. So let's speak about Greenson, because when I tell you that he worked at Beverly Hills, you already kind of get, like, high-profile psychiatrist, and he really was. He worked himself up to be exactly that. He was born and raised in Brooklyn. He kind of came from the family of overachievers. His twin sister grew up to be an accomplished concert pianist. He went to study at Columbia University and then went to Switzerland to finish his studies. Here is where he would meet his wife and he would marry. And then in 1938, he would go through Freudian analysis in Europe. They would return to the US, him and his wife, they would have two children, before he actually joined the war. In 1938, he would undergo Freudian analysis in Europe, him and his wife would return to the US, and they would have two children. Greenson also went to the war, and after his discharge, he set himself up in the LA psychiatric practice. Now, he was the founding member of the LA Psychoanalytic Society. He was connected to Anna Freud in London and was also a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA Medical School. And just like we have celebrity surgeons that you would see on like e-network as you were growing up and you're like, wow, your whole goal in life was to be a celebrity surgeon and this is the type of people that you want to interact with. What? goes on through your head. Well, this is kind of the way, the approach he applied to psychoanalysis. He actually started off with Second World War soldiers. And, you know, his early work after returning from war, you can kind of understand he wanted to deal with PTSD. And there were plenty of people he must have witnessed that have undergone PTSD while he was still in war. Eventually, he knew what his real goal was, that that was to treat Hollywood stars. His famous clients included Frank Sinatra, Vivian Leigh, Tony Curtis, and then, of course, Marilyn. So, with a celebrity status, obviously, with the surgeons, celebrity doctors, celebrity psychiatrists, comes mixed press. And Greenson would 
would be respected enough for people not to say anything, especially about the way he was treating Marilyn. However, he wouldn't really be taken super seriously, I would say. He was always known as an attention seeker who would seek out other famous people and kind of was known as somebody who would produce this pop psychology because he wanted to be liked. He wanted to be having this self-esteem for him to get even more and more famous clients. Actually, getting those clients to feel any better was really not the priority of Greenson's. So, however they met, whoever introduced Greenson to Marilyn, by the time she was shooting The Misfits, he wrote a letter to Marion Chris saying that he is going to be her one and only therapist. Marion would still stick around for quite some time, as we're gonna speak about, but eventually Greenson would take over. And the way Greenson saw Marilyn at the beginning of therapy just tells you everything. He described her as somebody so pathetic, such a perpetual orphan, that he felt even more sorry for how Marilyn would try and fail so often, which made her even more pathetic. So, there was a lot of work for Greenson to do, according to him. Meaning that eventually, they started off with meeting about five times a week, from what I've read, but eventually Marilyn and him would meet every single day of the week. And when they wouldn't meet, like, he would always be available for her to call him. She would sometimes stay over at his house. She would eventually become really a member of his family. She would come for dinners. She was constantly dependent on this man. And he would say that this is because she was lonely. She had nothing to do and no one to see if he didn't see her. Every day, they'd be on the phone so that she could understand his values and apply them to her acting. How does this make sense, Dr. Al Greenson? How does this make sense? So, we get to the question of where do we go from here? And the answer is to finish off the misfits, to finish off the story and the point of view on Arthur Miller and fully go into the point of view of one of the most unlikable characters, Dr. Ralph Greenson. So, we are in New York, fittings for the misfits. In July 1960, there's persistent pain in Marilyn's right side. She's having severe indigestion and more sleeping pills are flown to her in order for her to deal with insomnia. This is when she's introduced to Ralph Grinson, who is supplying her with more and more pills and suddenly realizing, no, oh, she really needs this treatment. So, back to this timeline, she gets hospitalized and the official announcement was that she had a breakdown. People believe that this is for the financial benefit, however, of the doctors that are supplying her with these pills, who at this point were many, but... Two of those names that you will keep hearing are Ralph Princeton and a guy that is called Hyman Engelberg. I can't, I just, I'm just gonna call him Engelberg because I'm not mature enough. This man's name is Hyman. He's a piece of shit. He's the one who was behind the prescriptions. So, um, Greenstone would be the psychiatrist and then he didn't want to have anything to do with the actual handling of medications. So, he would just make recommendations and then Engelberg would be the name that you would see on every single one of Marilyn's actual prescriptions. 
Hyman, Engelberg would be in charge of the prescriptions, and Greenson would always be in charge of the press, of deciding how long she would actually need to recover. So here, when she was hospitalized, he would tell the press that she will be back to work in a week. Like, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. And Arthur did go and visit her daily until 4th of September. This is when she returned with him to Reno, looking wonderfully self-possessed. Of course, Marilyn, every time when she would leave the hospitals, she would be surrounded by paparazzi, by the press, and she would just always try to look resilient, try to look heroic, try to look like she had it together this time. But by this point, both Miller and her knew that effectively they're parting their ways. So after Misfits was wrapped up in November, Marilyn would make a pact with a fellow actor, Clark Gable, on the set that she doesn't want to see or hear a word about Arthur Miller or his work ever again. Marilyn would say, I've played Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. I've tried to do a little better and find myself doing an imitation of myself. I so want to do something different. That was one of the things that attracted me to Arthur when he said he was attracted to me. When I married him, one of the fantasies in my mind was that I could get away from Marilyn Monroe through him. And here I find myself back doing the same thing. And I just couldn't take it. I had to get out of there. I just couldn't face having to go to another scene with Marilyn Monroe. Here, finally, you see Marilyn rejecting the artificial Marilyn Monroe, the one that Arthur manufactured, realizing that it was the role that she could assume and put off, that although Hollywood's Marilyn was part of her real self, there was a deeper self. There was something that she hasn't shown to the world, and that Arthur has never seen, and that he could never portray. She attached to the misfits the hope that Arthur would fulfill his promise to her. But what he presented wasn't a maturing person, wasn't a growing actress who completely changed her acting style, wasn't a performer with an increasing rage. She was a pile, frightened version of the image that she had hoped to leave in the past because it was her old self. The movie would wrap up with a combination of drugs, and her feeling like she has been blamed for everything. For the suspension of the shoes due to her breakdown, for the marriage that would end with Marilyn feeling devastated because of her feeling like she had failed. One of her greatest fears was disappointing those that she loved, and with the end of yet another marriage, this had come true again. End of The Misfits and the end of the year 1960 mark the whole and complete switch of dependence. Not on Arthur, but on another man in her life, and this man would be her doctor, her psychiatrist, Ralph Grinson. From this point on to the end of his life, Ralph Grinson developed a keen interest in what is known as countertransference, which is the reversal of dependency from patient to therapist. Eventually, he would use this term to describe his own feelings and how the therapy with Marilyn would work. Grinson would say of Marilyn, I was her therapist, the good father who would not disappoint her and who would bring her insights. And if not insights, just kindness. I had become the most important person in her life, but I also felt guilty that I put a burden on my own family. 
But there was something very lovable about this girl. We all cared about her, and she could be delightful. By the end of 1960, Marilyn would ask Arthur to leave their bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and they would make a joint announcement of their divorce. Before they married, Arthur would say the sad fact of her life is that she has calculated wrong every time she's made a decision. She had revised the calculation. Also, at the end of The Misfits, just a couple of weeks, if I remember right, that the shooting has ended, her co-star Clark Gable passed away, leaving Marilyn unconsolable. And you can really see how easy this would make her to be susceptible to the therapy and just the dependence on Ralph Grinson. Because to you and me, if somebody was to suggest, okay, you're gonna have therapy with me five days a week and then like every single day of the week and you're gonna have to be on a phone call with me whenever you want, you know, like and have dinners with my family and then sleep over whenever you want, you'd be like, okay, this person is psycho. This is clear psycho. Like, are you even qualified to be a psychiatrist? Which I have my, I have my doubts when it comes to Greenson. But for somebody like Marilyn, who is at the end of her third marriage, who feels like every father figure had ever, that she had ever had, had abandoned her. She's now feeling like yet another co-star had abandoned her, and she would be more prone to become dependent on somebody like Greenson. So by December, she is trying to move on. She's going back to the actor's studio classes, and she would get the payout for the Misfits and for some Like It Hot. She would spend Christmas at the Strasbourg's writing Christmas cards to the DiMaggio kids. This is something to note of Marilyn, as will come, it will be mentioned at some point later on. She always cared for the kids of the co-stars, but also for both DiMaggio's kids and Arthur Miller's kids. Like, she would always make sure that they had a Christmas card from her, that they can speak to her whenever they wanted to. The holidays lifted her spirits up a bit, and just as the end of the 1960s came around, well, she and the Americans were basing their mood on the enthusiasm that radiated from the president-elect, John F. Kennedy. So, with Misfits over in the beginning of 1961, Marilyn would write, I really am trying to find myself. And the best way for me to do that is to try to prove to myself that I'm an actress. And that is what I hope to do. My work is important to me. It's the only ground I've ever had to stand on. To put it bluntly, I seem to have a whole superstructure with no foundation. But now I'm working on the foundation. The beginning of 1961 also offered a new prospect. She was to star in the television realization of Rain, which would be the classic Somerset Moham story. However, the project didn't go through because NBC didn't want to hire Marilyn's choice of director, Lee Strasberg, who would be by her side through her other productions. So instead, she decided to focus on her personal life. She changed her will, taking her soon-to-be ex-husband out of it. And in her new will, about $10,000 would go to Bernice, her half-sister, then personal effects to Lee Strasberg. She would set up a trust fund of $100,000 for Gladys, her mom, and for Mrs. Michael Chekhov to take care of her mom, and then 25% of the estate would go to Marianne Chris, a psychiatrist. At the time, 75% of her estate would go to Lee Strasberg. 
In January of 1961, she also had a trip to Mexico that marked the end of her marriage. And this is something that was known as a Mexican divorce at the time. I have only briefly looked it up, but apparently a divorce in Mexico would be cheaper, easier than a divorce in most of the US states. And it kind of allowed them to avoid the lengthy court process. So from the 24th of January, she was no longer Mrs. Arthur Miller. These trips to Mexico, there would be another one, would also set the basis for her doctors, Hyman in particular, to later claim that this is where she would actually be obtaining large quantities of sleeping pills illegally. While his name is on the prescriptions, yes. I will never stop repeating that because I have found it in black and white, his prescriptions for Nebutal, for like other things. Sometimes I can't read them properly, but his name is on these prescriptions. And even, you know, on the pictures where we later talk about it in the end of this part, and then part three, where you will see the pills on the table, on the night table, next to Marilyn's bed, when she would be found again. Engelbert's name is on them. It doesn't look like any of the pills that I have seen were obtained illegally. But obviously these trips would set kind of the basis for any sort of outrageous claims that would be made in Marilyn's name later on. Like with every partner, really, except maybe with Joy DiMaggio and, like, divorce from him, Marilyn would really stay graceful to the man that she would date, saying that Arthur was a good writer, but it didn't work out. But everybody I ever loved, I still love a little. And to close off with Miller's point of view, I just wanted to ask you all, do you think that he got what he wanted out of her? because he showcased Marilyn to the world the way he saw her, which some would say for an artist, for a writer, might have been the greatest accomplishment of their career, translating the fictional Marilyn Monroe as Rosalind to the screen, because I don't think he ever saw true Marilyn Monroe. And this meant that The Misfits was never well-received by the critics, because people see through it. If he's changing the script every night, that That is very visible. That will be very visible on the screens. Just like Let's Make Love movie she did by 1st of February after her divorce, with the failure of the two films, in her eyes, obviously, because she's always aspiring to become better and better, and she's seeing the critics, she's seeing that's not really translating, and no prospects of work, well, Marilyn would find consolation in nothing. She would stay at home, in her darkened bedroom, she would play sad songs. It was said she was rapidly losing weight and taking more and more sleeping pills. This shift in mood alarmed her psychiatrist at the time, Marianne Chris. She was seeing multiple doctors, but Marianne was still somebody she was closest with. So Marianne suggested that she gets admitted to the psychiatric ward called Payne Whitney's. Now, Marilyn would, as we know through the misfits and like throughout her life, sometimes go for a resting visit in a hospital where she would just be supervised and basically taken care of by the doctors. So, in her fur coat, she would enter this hospital in February of 1961 and she would introduce herself as Faye Miller. 
So Marilyn would be the one to sign the papers to admit herself here. But she quickly found out that she is not here to just rest, to just sleep in bed and be taken care of by the doctors. Rather, she would be for almost three days put in a padded room in a locked psychiatric ward. She would sob and ask to be let out, banging on the steel doors. And the psychiatric staff, because of this behavior, really believed that she indeed had to be there and that she was displaying some psychotic behavior. She would be threatened here for two and a half days to be put into a straight jacket. Her clothes and purse would be taken away from her and she was given a forced bath, put into a hospital gown. And she would be in one of the cells for the most disturbed patients. So, something to pause and think about here. Thinking about Marilyn and her history and how her history had been told to her, how she had heard her mother scream while she was escorted to be hospitalized, Gladys, that is, and then she was given in Grace's care, but also what Gladys must have told her about her ancestors as well, because Della, as we know, like her grandmother lied to her about the mental health issues of other people in the family due to probably shame. But here, even for a perfectly healthy person, this would have been too much. Like, you would be acting like somebody who desperately wants to get out of a padded room, because you know what a padded room means. You're not stupid. You know that it means other people are not considering that you're mentally healthy, that you're sane. It would cause extreme shock to anybody. So, Marilyn here would just think about her ancestors would break down, weeping, shouting to be released, and banging on the locked door until her fists were bleeding. When the intern at the place asked her, why are you so unhappy? Quite smartly, I would say, Marilyn asked him, I've been paying the best doctors a fortune to find out why, and you're asking me. For two days and nights, she would endure this frightening situation. And Marilyn, as the book says, who from childhood hated locked doors and never barred her own bedroom, was almost in a state of total nervous breakdown. And from this point on in her life, she never locked her bedroom door, not permitted the key or latch to operate it. She hated to feel closed in at work or at home. Finally, somebody, some nurse with some fucking sympathy, some fucking empathy, some common sense, allowed her to actually write a letter. And she wrote it to Lee and Paula Strasberg. And the letter would end with Marilyn saying, please help me. This is the last place I should be. I love you both. Both of the Strasbergs, like, tried to reach out, but were apparently powerless to help. So, when she was next allowed by this nurse or somebody else a phone call, she rang Joey DiMaggio. And this is when Joey would be introduced, reintroduced into Marilyn's life. And from this point on, up until the end of her life, he would really be by her side. He would be one person in her corner. And I have mixed feelings about Joey DiMaggio, as I explained in part one, because he wasn't really the best husband. There were claims that he was abusive, that I kind of believe in, but he was somebody that Marilyn could rely on from this point on. So, Joey came for a visit, and he fought for her to be released, which she finally was 
on the 5th of March. So after over 48 hours living through this trauma, she finally managed to secure her release. He would transport her to a neurological department at a different medical center, which is where Marilyn would stay for three years, and Joy would be visiting her daily. He was always there, they would go to places together, but she still wasn't officially dating him, which kind of, I believe, in my opinion, allowed her to move on. So she would be released after three weeks of staying in this hospital, and here she would say to the cameras that she felt wonderful and she had a nice rest. But at this point, she lost more than 15 pounds, and just nobody really believed this cover-up anymore. The whole world really saw that Marilyn was struggling, that she did have some health issues at this point. Instead of going back to work here, she would have to spend the next couple of months of 1961, really all the way up until the end of summer, in hospitals for different health issues. Here she would have her gallbladder removed, and she would also have the surgery for endometriosis. And Joey was always by her side. You know, he would be there transporting her to the hospital, visiting her in those hospitals, and also making sure they go for different visits, they go out, they go eat in different restaurants as well. So when she would leave the hospital in July after the gallbladder removal, she would move into the apartment that became available at the same complex where she lived in 1952. And this would be Doheny Drive. Yet again, like in so many places where Marilyn lived, something that she was famous for would be immediately installing heavy curtains, just trying to block the light away. As we know, she struggled with insomnia, she struggled with sleeping, that's easy to understand. Here, just as with the complete blockage of light, though, it just seemed like she didn't really intend to stay here for much longer, because the place lacked personal touch. There was merely a bookshelf, clothes, and a makeup box in this place. And it just seemed like this would be a location to go from, to the producers, to Greenson, until she figured out what to do with her life. And as sensitive as ever to the noise, to ambient noise, as we know, she would struggle with silence, with the lack of work. She ended up resorting to Nambuto to sleep when she would return to Doheny Drive. If you ask people in Marilyn's life at that point, or if you were to trust the book, it's kind of like the place of uncertainty where she was now. It's just like she has spent basically half of the year hospitalized, she's in this place, doesn't really feel like she's at home, she doesn't really know if she was to go back to DiMaggio, she doesn't really know where her therapy is going, where her career is going. And it is said that during this period she didn't date Joey, rather that she was briefly dating his friend, Frank Sinatra, only for a couple of months. These rumors would be sparked because she attended a party in Vegas that was given by Sinatra, and people would say that there was no doubt that Sinatra was in love with Marilyn, and they had a brief romance until the end of the year. However, again, in my opinion, she was nor here nor there. She didn't really know where her life was going at this point, and she just wasn't really ready to date. And why I say that and why I think she really officially wouldn't have made her dating history public 
was because she was deeply dependent on her psychiatrist. At first, Marilyn really liked Grinson. She really liked the switch to him. However, he soon enough began to display his true colors, to exert more and more control over her life, deciding who she should have for friends, who might visit her, and so on. And she felt it was necessary to obey. So, this again is a sideline. It's my own opinion. But if you remember in part one, I said how with Joey DiMaggio it was all about fulfilling daddy issues for Marilyn in a romantic sense. I feel like with Grinson, from day one, she obeyed as she actually saw him as a father figure. Somebody actually qualified as well. And like with Miller, however, without any romantic involvement. What fed into this for Marilyn was that by October 1961, Grinson was cancelling all of the appointments with all of the other clients, and we know he had quite famous clients, for Marilyn, putting her as his priority. Soon enough, she was staying for dinner with his family, sometimes three or four times a week. The doctor was, as his own wife, bear in mind, would say, making a patient a member of his family fulfilling his foster home fantasy of a haven where all hurts are mended. The core, the core to understanding Ralph Grinson lies in two things. One is, as I mentioned, making her a surrogate family member. This might have been the way Grinson saw therapy, and why I kind of doubt into his qualifications to begin with, even though he studied to become this person, is just where he transformed therapy and how he actually saw it. So, in one public paper he gave, he told his colleagues that to be willing to become emotionally involved with their patients, you need to hope to establish a reliable therapeutic relationship. And for Greenson, this meant Marilyn, or just like his patients, but especially Marilyn, who was raised in foster care and an orphanage, experiencing the real family. So this would be the traditional Freudian therapy that he worked on Marilyn, where she needed to see and experience a normal, stable family in order to be able to create one for herself. This doesn't make sense in terms of the amount of time that he was committing to it, because if she is staying at his, having all of the therapy, living with his family, how can she create her own? First of all, she's just dependent on him. However, also, it means, like, his whole family was involved. There was no critical distance. There's no distance. There's no boundaries between a therapist and a client. So, by the Christmas time, she would spend time, she would stay overnight with his family, she was part, she knew, like, his wife, she knew his kids, and even Joey DiMaggio would fly in to be with her, and it would always feel like Marilyn was going out of a family home, right? Going out of her way to see DiMaggio because Grinson made himself and his own family her priority which is so bizarre to me, that he, as a therapist, made a client see him as her priority, see his values in order to apply to her life, rather than it being the completely other way around. The second core to who Grinson was, 
was making her completely dependent on him. You can see how, if you are in somebody's life seven days a week, pretty dependent on this person and their primary human in their life. Grinson himself would have benefited from counseling. <laughs> I forgot I put that in the script. But instead of giving her techniques, coping mechanisms to find her own voice, to make her own judgments, he made her more dependent on him, ensuring his own dominance. And this is so weird, and I'll mention it in a second, but he would ensure his primacy even when it came to Joe. He would sometimes, like, make sure that he was her priority, like, that as in therapies that would last sometimes for hours with him would be her priority, rather than Joey DiMaggio, who would re-enter her life. This intense relationship at first would be flattering, but Greenson couldn't replace her work. One part that he could never replace, making her go into depression. She would write this lyric to express her mood. Help, help. Help, I feel life coming closer when all I want is to die. A part of her would always reject Greenson's manipulation, but she would be, at this point, more and more dependent on him and more and more dependent on the drugs that he wanted her to take. 1961 would end with her spending Christmas with Joey at the Doheny place. And the beginning of 1962, Marilyn would get a new house. So let us do this in a classic way I do sometimes in these videos. Let me tell you the short of it, and then we are going to break this down and introduce the last unlikable character of the day and the last point of view. So with the help of Joy DiMaggio at the beginning of 1982, well, in February, really, she would move into her last residence. This would be Fifth Helena Drive. And this place would be in LA. It's just like one of those places, it's how you imagine LA houses to look like. A perfect garden, perfectly trimmed, perfectly taken care of, a modernly designed house, and then, of course, a huge pool on the outside. She would pay about $77,500 for this house. And this home would be bought after the encouragement from her psychoanalyst, Dr. Ralph Grinson who was still maybe trying to instill some permanence in Marilyn's life. You know, he obviously wanted her to have the family on its own. She can't really live with him. It's how his therapy works, after all. He would have help from a woman that's called Eunice Murray, and she would be the person who actually found this property for Marilyn. Eunice would say the doctor thought the house would take the place of a baby or a husband and that it would protect her. The right house found now, Grinson would tell Marilyn who to hire to keep the house well kept. This would be done by Grinson to exert, finally, full control over Marilyn. He got himself a spy who will see Marilyn's house as hers, Marilyn's lifestyle as hers, and her friends as her own support system. Now, for the long of it, we have to speak about Grinson Spy. We have to speak about Marilyn's new housekeeper and go into the last point of view of the day. Eunice Murray, then 59 years old, is 
by people that knew her, described as one of the strangest creatures. There is nothing strange about Eunice Murray. She's an open fucking book that I would never like to have read about, but here we are, because she's a crucial part in Marilyn's life. Eunice, as we will dive into her background, you will see why, you will really see why, but she lived through Marilyn. That is her point of view. She, as I told you, saw Marilyn's life as her own. Unlike Natasha, though, and unlike Grace that we spoke about in part one, Eunice didn't live through Marilyn's career. She didn't have the aspirations of a failed actress like Natasha and like Grace. She didn't use her solely as a meal ticket like Grace did. Eunice really lived through Marilyn's life. And this is why. It's a very clear background. There is absolutely nothing for me to justify somebody calling Eunice a strange creature. As I told you, an open book. Eunice was the second of two girls. She would be born in Chicago in 1902, and her parents were Jehovah's Witnesses sect members. They would move to rural Ohio when she was young. As she attended country grade school, she was dispatched to Ohio, and this is because her sister Carolyn, who was four years older than Eunice, was already boarding this Swedenborgian religion type of school. Now, the following year, the school roster would list LA as Eunice's home address and Chicago as Carolyn's. And this is probably because, as explained by the book, Carolyn fell ill with Spanish influenza, and had to be put under physician's care. Because Eunice's and Caroline's parents were super religious, they basically disowned Caroline because she was sick and she needed medical care, and this would have gone against their religion. However, Eunice always stayed in touch with Caroline, and not just stayed in touch, but she adored her sister and considered herself, as she would say, Caroline's mere shadow. She was also just deeply affected by how her parents just disowned her sister, and she started suffering subtle but distinct signs of emotional disturbance. The way this would be displayed would be in the inability to differentiate between her life from the one of her sister and her friends. What I mean by that is, like, when the education would end, she would witness Caroline, for example, getting married to a minister. So, continuing to identify with her sister, Eunice would marry not a minister, but a World War veteran and the son of one. So, the son of a minister, in order to, as much as possible, replicate who Caroline was as a person. She would always be in her sister's shadow, however. Her sister would become a nurse, so Eunice pretended to be a nurse, and her lack of education wouldn't allow her to become a teacher, which is what she initially wanted, let alone a nurse. So, Eunice and the husband, the son of the minister, would have two kids, but the husband was said to be traveling at all times, so Eunice decides to sell the home of theirs, where they were living to, in order to move with her husband, and she would sell it to one such Ralph Grinson, Marilyn's psychotherapist. She would befriend the buyers, she would befriend the Grinsons, and ask if she could work for them. It tells you everything about Grinson's character, that he actually decided, yes, 
I will hire you, person with no qualifications, nothing whatsoever. So what would Greenson, somebody who is qualified in this area, hire her for? Well, he would put her in the homes of his most important clients to monitor them and act as a companion, a nursemaid. The emphasis, you know, she wanted the nurse career, a nursemaid, the position she had no training or skills for, which put Eunice in a position where she owed him. Like, he would be paying her and, like, the owners would be paying her, but she always would report to him. She would be obedient to him, reporting every detail of his clients' lives. She did it for the money. However, also as somebody who was always in her sister's shadow, who always wanted this type of job, she got that type of job without any qualifications. Like, the dynamic of these two people is so, so mind-boggling to me that Marilyn, in the last year of her life, was surrounded by two people that were just not qualified to be there. Eunice would end up divorcing, no surprise there. She failed in emulating her sister. Wow, how the fuck did that happen? So she was lonely and she found her purpose with Ralph Grinson. The clients whose homes Eunice was put in would range from somebody who barely needed therapy, who just really wanted it for the sake of it, to people seriously ill with depression or schizophrenia, like Ralph believed Marilyn had. And Eunice might have sensed a younger version of herself with Marilyn, somebody who was denied education because they had to prematurely marry and then were unhappily married three times. So in Marilyn, psychologically speaking, she might have had a chance to revise what she did wrong. And with the help of the common denominator, Ralph Grinson, that was finally possible. She finally would be able to live through somebody else. She might actually, in her own mind, not be a mere shadow of somebody, but might actually live successfully through this person. From day one at Ohini Drive, which is where she would be first put in, Eunice treated Marilyn in a very sweet manner. Uh, the way she tried to portray herself and the way you will see her in these interviews would be like this sweet old lady, because even at that point she would be like in her 50s. She would tell Marilyn where she should shop and how she should arrange her day around Greenson. And by all accounts, Marilyn, again, like with Greenson, she saw the red flags. She hated her prying ass and the obvious function that the doctor put her in. So, just yet again, to emphasize on this and to recap this section, Marilyn, from this point on, from 1961, but really, let's talk about beginning of 1962, is in hands of a pseudo-science guy, the guy whose main goal is to treat celebrities and whose diagnosis we can't even find, and the woman who isn't qualified to be a housekeeper, let alone a nurse or a carer. Back into our timeline, we are now at the Christmas time in 1961. Marilyn would be spending it with DiMaggio, as I mentioned, and he would even accompany her to the Greenson's house, and then they would spend New Year's Eve on their own in Doheny tribe. So, for the long of it, between January and May of 1962, 
Eunice, the perfect estate agent, somehow as well super not qualified for this fucking job, but she's doing it, she found a home for Marilyn. Greenson went along for a viewing to approve the choice, because both of them had to approve that this house is very well equipped for her to be spied in on, and she would move into 12305 Fifth Helena Drive. Immediately upon moving to the new house, Eunice started planning the renovations on it, of course on Marilyn's expense, because Eunice deemed them necessary. One thing that will not be removed or touched was something that was instilled by the builders 30 years before Marilyn moved in. It would be the Latin expression, cursum perficio, laid in the Mexican-style tiles outside of the front door, meaning my journey's end. So, as Eunice is working on the renovations and hiring some of her family members, something that Marilyn wouldn't really be privy to, she, Marilyn, heard from the Hollywood talk the first rumblings of an important man in her life. John F. Kennedy. So, let us go into the Kennedy connection, what the connection between both JFK and RFK, the two brothers. One, the President of the United States, the other one, the Attorney General. The book that I have read by Donald Schpoto behind me only commits to the Kennedys for a couple of pages. It only states, like, the factual meetups, what is known by the public when and where Marilyn had met JFK, and then when she would have met up with his younger brother, Robert. And I point out usually, when it comes to these accounts of events, that that makes the book very biased. By the end of part two, and especially the beginning of part three, you will really see who Donald Spoto thinks did this. And I still, because I have mostly read the book, agree with him to a certain degree, and I will also tell you why in part three. However, what this means is now, we're gonna go through what the book says about the meetups between the Kennedys and Marilyn, and the factual transportation links, confirmations, things like that, where, you know, it is confirmed how and where they met. And then in part three, I will look into whether there are any grounds for controversies, for speculations, for any kind of implications of the Kennedys in Marilyn's life, just so you don't expect all of that right now. So, for the short of it, according to Donald Spoto, no serious biographer can identify JFK and Marilyn Monroe as partners in a love affair. Between October of 1961 and August of 1962, the President of the United States and the actress would meet on four occasions, and one of those occasions, Marilyn would use a phone to call one of her friends from a bedroom that she had shared with the president. This friend of hers would be Ralph Roberts, and Ralph was a masseur of Marilyn's at the time. He was also an actor, but from the connection that I believe he had with Marilyn, he was her masseur, and also is somebody who she considered a friend. So, what Ralph would say about that encounter where Marilyn rang him on the phone when she was with the president is that she gave him the impression that it was not a major event for either of them, that it happened once that weekend and that was that. So, according to Donald Schwato, what she had with the president was a one-night stand, not really 
an affair that wouldn't really benefit any of them. And I just have to point here, if Ralph Roberts was really her friend, which from the whole book I believed to think he was, he could have lied for her. He didn't have to out her. He didn't have to even mention this. But this is one of those things which is a common knowledge, which is why people really believe that she did have the affair with the president, or at least she slept with him once. So, just again to point out, to me, this gives me validation that somebody who could have lied for her and covered up didn't, making this story that Donald Spoto says more believable. The story that she did sleep with him once, but that it wasn't really going anywhere beyond that. So, for the long of it, let us summarize those four events. Now, before I can summarize those four events, I have to introduce you to a side character. Somebody that a lot of people believe is a crucial part of this story, but I will call him the side character because he would have absolutely hated that. And I do not personally have much respect for the man that was Peter Lawford. Peter would end up being the guy married to Patricia Kennedy, Pat Kennedy, who was RFK and JFK's sister. He was a former child actor. He moved to Hollywood in 1938. He would play opposite Frank Sinatra and would actually star in about 50 movies. He was mostly, however, known as somebody who was a member of the Rat Pack and who was closely linked to the number one family of the nation after marrying Pat Kennedy. The Red Pack was the name that was given to the informal group of entertainers. Lawford was in it, Sinatra was in it, a bunch of other people that are not really relevant to this story. However, these people would make films and appear together in Las Vegas casino venues, and they were famous for, like, hitting on famous actresses and just, like, famous women, and because of their connection to the Kennedys. Another thing that Peter Lawford was famous for would be the beach house that he had in L.A. Here, it was said that John and Robert Kennedy would often stay with Pat and Peter. It would be based in Santa Monica. And Marilyn's documented meetings with JFK and RFK would take place here. The truth of the matter is that nobody really knows what was going on at this beach house, and a lot of famous people are saying that the things that went on in there would be just mind-boggling. Most of the conspiracy theories about Kennedy's revolve around the events that were said to have happened there. The possession of pictures that Lawford might have of Marilyn performing different acts on the Kennedys, that the beach house was bugged and there might be some recordings that we will not have access to, the tapes of sex acts between Marilyn and the president, and anything really that was recorded, any chats that might have exposed any political affiliations of Marilyn or of the president. Lawford was the person who we know was present when Marilyn met the president of the United States. And the only times that Marilyn and either Kennedy brother were seen in public together, he would be there at his house during the party that was thrown for JFK to mark the end of the 1960 Democratic Convention, and 
in Madison Square Garden, where she would end up singing happy birthday to the president. So, Marilyn and Peter, actually, it is said that they had known each other even before she was to have met up with the president, because he was an actor before even meeting Pat Kennedy. So, they had been said to have known each other ever since 1950, when they met on the lot at MGM Studios, where Marilyn was working on Hometown Story in 1951. A different biographer, Anthony Summers, who wrote a book called Goddess on Marilyn Monroe, would say that the two of them actually even went on a couple of dates. And Marilyn would say for a magazine later that she never had a date with Peter. That they were at the same table at a nightclub, she might have danced with him, but that hardly constitutes a date, and certainly not a romance. So, instead, he might have wanted to date her, might not, she would be an invitee to his beach house, on certain dates, and one date that we'll speak in particular about, but instead, maybe as a shadow, he was just there, as she would go along and meet the Kennedys. Something to clarify, in terms of whose corner Peter Lawford would have been in, it would definitely not have been Marilyn's. He was married to Kennedy, he was part of the Rat Pack, Peter Lawford was definitely in the Kennedy corner. Now, let us break down all of the occasions and why I went on about Peter Lawford, because I mentioned he would be present as Marilyn was to meet up with the two brothers. So, first, we are going to break down Marilyn's meetings with the president, with John, and then we'll go through her meetups with Robert to see the different dynamic and for you to form your own opinion. So, according to the books, according to the book, behind me, rather, these are the only official meetups between the two parties. The first time that Marilyn met the President of the United States was said to have been at Patricia and Peter's Santa Monica Beach House. This occasion was a dinner party in honor of the President, and among other guests were different blonde movie stars and the president had an affair with at least two other women that was actually confirmed as an affair, not just as a one-night stand. The October night of the first meetup, it was said that Marilyn was driven back to her flat by one of Peter Lawford's staff, and that before this, the schedules of Monroe's and Kennedy's since his inauguration in January of 1961 would offer different locations for the two parties, so that they couldn't have physically met up before this. The second time they met up was in February of 1962, when Marilyn was again invited to a dinner party for the president. This time this would be in a Manhattan home of the wealthy socialite widow called Fifi Fell. Marilyn was escorted from her New York apartment to the Fell residence by Milton Evans. Now, Milton Evans was a talent manager, and he wasn't in the Rat Pack, but he was said to also be very close to the Kennedys, and that he was the Rat Pack insider. He was the one who always was privy as to what was going on with the Kennedy family. So, Milton saw her home, and he also knew where she lived. 
Now, the third meeting happened in March 1962, when both the president and Marilyn were the house guests of Bing Crosby in Palm Springs. This would be the time when she would have a phone call with her masseur, Ralph Roberts, from the bedroom that she was sharing with the president. The fourth and the last meeting of the two of them, which would result in the only photograph that we have of the president and the actress in the same picture, would be in May of 1962 at the birthday gala for Kennedy at Madison Square Garden. And this would include a party that happened after, which would be like an after-party, at the home of the movie executive Arthur Krim. This was said to have been probably the briefest meeting. Like, the picture that you see is probably the only time they might have exchanged some words, because then the family was just taken away by friends, admirers, and the press for the rest of that evening. Other two friends of Marilyn's offered up their opinion as to why an affair would have been a bizarre kind of concept to think of. One of them would be Susan Strasberg. And she said that not in her worst nightmare would Marilyn have wanted to be with JFK on any permanent basis. It was okay for one night to sleep with a charismatic president, and she loved the secrecy and drama of it. But he certainly wasn't the kind of man she wanted for life, and she was very clear to us about this. Cindy Skolsky would also say that for Marilyn, what counted was the idea of the little orphan waif indulging in free love with the leader of the free world. As for John's younger brother, Robert, the attorney general, he would be there during those meetings. Well, not the one where she slept with his brother, apparently. He wasn't there, like, holding a candle. So, for the short of it, the biographers maintained that there was nothing more than a friendship between Robert Kennedy and Marilyn. Most biographers, that is. According to Don Luscotto, even more than with JFK, it would have been impossible for Marilyn to have an affair with Robert due to their different schedules. And it is said that they also met four times, but as their schedules between 61 and 62 would reveal, he never shared a bed with her. Other biographers would point out that, again, unlike his older brother, Robert was not known as a philander. He wasn't known as somebody who would go out and have affairs, which was kind of a common knowledge for JFK. Like, a lot of his affairs weren't really a secret, whereas Robert was said to have been known as a more faithful husband to his wife. So, Marilyn's first meeting with Robert Kennedy would have happened several weeks before she met with his older brother, the president. It would have been early October, either the 2nd or the 3rd of 1961, when Kennedy was attending a series of meetings with the U.S. attorneys and members of the FBI in Phoenix, L.A., San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. It was said that the attorney general attended a dinner party at the Lawfords, and around midnight, Marilyn decided to go home. But she drank too much champagne, so Bobby would not let her drive her car, and instead, like, the Lawford people actually drove her to her door of the house in Helena Drive. The second meeting between them happened a year after, in February of 1962, when Robert would be dining at Lawford's. 
That evening, again, Marilyn was said to be quite sober and a really nice person, fun to talk with, warm and interested in serious issues. Pat remembered that Marilyn kind of took that approach of learning when it comes to why she was actually even reaching out and speaking to Bobby Kennedy. According to Pat, her publicist, she would tell her, I want to be in touch, Pat. I want to really know what's going on in the country. She would be especially concerned about civil rights. She really cared about that. So when press would report that Bobby was talking to her more than anyone else, that's what they meant. That she was asking questions and she really identified with all the people who were denied civil rights. The day after the second meeting with Robert Kennedy, Marilyn actually wrote two letters. One of them would be to Arthur Miller's dad, Isidore, and the other one would be to Arthur Miller's son, Bobby. And it is probably because of Arthur Miller and his influence, and when it comes to like politics, he was probably quite knowledgeable. So she would write to them that she attended the dinner in honor of the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, how he seemed mature and brilliant, but what she liked best about him, besides his civil rights program, is that he's got such a wonderful sense of humor. The last time that she would have met up with Robert, so beyond the Lawford's beach house, which is apparently where they met up at least two times from what I have read, would be in Madison Square Garden, when Marilyn sang Happy Birthday, to Bobby's older brother. And the book insinuates that given the relationships between the brothers as well, so not just the dynamic between their marriages, but also the dynamic between the two of them, it would have been unthinkable that both of the brothers slept with Marilyn, and that that was just never showcased to the public, that that never affected the dynamic between the two of them, which probably would have, if you think about, like, yeah, Maybe they are just better at concealing affairs and concealing how that affects their lives. But if Marilyn really slept with both the brothers, I don't know, I have a feeling like something would have leaked about that, or the brothers would have acted suspiciously in relation to one another. And as for Marilyn, as for Marilyn's end, well, this isn't funny. It isn't funny. But according to Marilyn's friends, she didn't find Robert Kennedy, the younger Kennedy, physically appealing. She didn't think he was hot. She did think JFK was hot, though, so... It's a, it's a win-lose kind of situation. Is it, is it a lose-lose kind of situation? What's with the appeal with the Kennedys? Okay, this is a dumb opinion but it just crossed my mind. But you know how Kim Kardashian, during her life or whatever, during her political career and she started studying law and everything, like, met up with Trump's? It was a more particular reason with that, but, like, she met up with Donald Trump. Nobody ever started any rumors about Kim K and Donald Trump sleeping together. I know that's a dumb comment, but also, did people just find Kennedy's attractive? Because I... I don't fully get this. I get it on a political level, especially with Arthur Miller and communists and the Cold War situation at the point, but in terms of speculation and, like, would have Marilyn just slept with both of the brothers, I don't fully get it. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm not gonna lie. I don't think even if something, God forbid, was to happen to Kim K now, people would be like, the Trump connection. Kind of like what they, where they went immediately here. It's a different political climate, 
I know that before you fucking scream at me. Which just crossed my mind because of the comment about how Robert was not the hot one. Was JFK hot? Like, please, this is not a hill I wanna die on. I'm gonna move on. We know that she didn't find Robert Kennedy hot because of the comments she made to her masseur, Ralph, where she would say, I like him, but not physically. And then with her long-term friend, Sidney Skolsky, it was also said that she was liaison of John's. And as for Robert Kennedy, she just never really mentioned him. What instigated the rumors when it came to Robert then are mainly two things. One of them quoted a lot more than the other, and the other one provided us with a lot more facts, let's be honest. So the first one is the Kennedys had another sister. There's a lot of them, by the way. But the sister called Jean actually wrote to Marilyn, and this was apparently a public letter, well, later exposed to the public, that said, I understand that you and Bobby are now a new item. We all think you should come with him when he comes back east. This note would have never, like, 100% positively been linked to Jean, to the Kennedy sisters. So again, not sure if speculation, some biographers really put some weight on this because it would have been Kennedy's sister calling them an item. The second part that instigated the rumors, where I think maybe, yes, more information could have been obtained, but due to technology at the time, it just wasn't. There were phone records between Robert and Marilyn from July of 1962, where Marilyn placed eight calls to the Attorney General's office. And Marilyn's publicist, Pat, would say these calls were just short and like, they weren't lovers. However, then, people who are supporting Kennedy conspiracy theories would say that she called Bobby on the private line, and then when he refused to answer, she would call the general switchboard. But Marilyn would have an address book that was found in her house, and this address book never had Robert Kennedy's private line. So maybe she knew it by heart, or maybe this is yet again just the speculation. So why are the Kennedy conspiracies still rampant? Mostly because of her appearance with JFK, the agreement on at least a one-night stand, but as for Robert in particular, due to unofficial sources and the neighbors spreading gossip, people did believe that he was seen at Helena Drive, based off of multiple people's gossip. I'm actually gonna put this on the screen so I don't, like, read it out. It's just the notes that I made that were published in a different book, in the book Goddess, and also from the interviews that people have had with the neighbors. The gist is the neighbors would claim that Robert would appear at Helena Drive. The film directors would report that Marilyn told them that Bobby promised to marry her. And then her hairdresser claimed in his biography that Marilyn called him, Bobby Kennedy, the day before she died, telling him she was threatening to tell the world all about her and him, and that he threatened to shut her up. So, on one side, from Spotter's book, we have facts, and according to him and his research, in terms of, like, their transport, in terms of, like, their public appearances, it would have been impossible for Marilyn to have had these affairs with the Kennedys, any of the two brothers. There was a one-night stand, and that was about it. 
the Kennedys, that she slept with JFK and Bobby and was in love with Bobby when she died. Uh, this is, uh, as the great writer Ben Hecht used to say, a lot of hooey. It's absolute rubbish. She didn't um, sleep with them? Marilyn Monroe never had an affair with Robert Kennedy. What we can document very firmly is that they met on four social occasions, always in the presence of a number of other people. But there isn't a single shred of credible evidence nor a single credible witness to the fact that there was any intimacy between them. And how do we establish this, Brian? We line up on one side of a page the whereabouts of Robert Kennedy during his tenure as Attorney General. And on the other side of the page, we can line up where Marilyn Monroe was. It's very difficult to conduct an affair from 8,000 miles distance. What about JFK? JFK and Marilyn also met socially on four times. And on one of those occasions, they shared a bedroom at the home of Bing Crosby in Palm Springs, Saturday, March 25th, 1962. So it's a one-night stand, you're saying? If you want to call it that, yeah. And those can be confirmed by press articles, transportation links. And then, on the other end, we have, from what I have seen, mostly hearsay, interviews with people without any supporting evidence, at least from what I have seen. People believing in hearsay also think if there was an affair, both of these individuals would have had the motive. So, there are, like, so many. If you were to Google this case, the conspiracy theories range from did she have JFK's love child and did she have to abort it? Were there any conversations recorded at Lawford's house? What would they be about? JFK might have wanted her shut up. With JFK, people mostly believed that there were some sort of tapes, whether they were tapes of cuddly talk, sex tapes of the two of them, or whether Marilyn might have had suspected ties to the Communist Party because of Arthur Miller, because of her personal interests, and those started to be whispered about. Maybe she had political chats that were recorded by Lowford, and that she was threatening to expose Kennedy in some sort of way because of some tapes that she found out were made of her, and that he had to shut her up. When it comes to Robert Kennedy, mostly people do think that, yeah, there was an affair that he wanted to cut her off, whether or not because she was pregnant with him, and it was, again, a love child. People can't agree whose love child this would have been, whether the president's or his brother's, which I find so, so bizarre. Like, if you have those kind of speculations, then at least make it clear which one is it more obvious for you. People just can't agree of it online. But with RFK, it's more that... People are saying, because of hearsay, because of the interviews with neighbors and friends, that he might have been present at Helena Drive in the weeks before, and that he might have been there on the scene of the crime. So let me break this down for you quickly. The basis for the rumors that Robert was actually day the day of Marilyn's death would be supported by the next-door neighbor, to Marilyn on Fifth Helena Drive, claiming to have seen Robert Kennedy arrive at her home on the day that she died. There's no supporting evidence of this, no photographic evidence of this. And Eunice, the housekeeper, her first event of events? No mention of Robert Kennedy whatsoever. In 1985, she would change her story. She changed her story multiple times, FYI. She would change it, saying that Bobby had been at Marilyn's home on the afternoon of August the 4th, 1962, again, the day of Marilyn's death. 
Physically, however, Robert Kennedy was in different place. He was in San Francisco, which was miles away from Marilyn's home in California. What would be reported by the press was that he was using the weekend to prepare for the opening address for the American Bar Association convention the following Monday, Sunday afternoon, they would have been in San Francisco. This would have been the day of Marilyn's death. This was all reported in, like, Gilroy Dispatch in different newspapers. So the only way that that evening, that weekend, between Saturday and Sunday, Robert was present in California, in Helena Drive, on the scene of the crime, would have been if he decided to take a helicopter. On his own, would be if everybody else, Lawford, other people we're gonna speak about, were in on it. Not impossible, however, again, not much to support that, except from, again, hearsay by other people, saying that, yes, indeed, he was involved, Bobby was at the scene of the crime, then the evidence had to be removed, giving him enough time to get back to Peter Lawford's beach house, and this would be where he would have taken helicopter to the local airport, and here is where he would have taken a flight from San Francisco. Again, is it a helicopter? Is it an actual flight? Of which we would have probably had records even back in the day. But there would be photographers that would tell Summers, Anthony Summers, the biographer and the writer of um, the other book on Marilyn called Goddess, that they had seen a helicopter pilot's flight log which showed a mysterious entry from LA back to San Francisco, indicating that RFK was flown out of LA that night. They had said that this flight had taken place at around 2 or 3 in the morning, that Kennedy had been at the beach house, the Lawford's house, that night. He had flown out, and the message that they got back was that Kennedy would appreciate if we didn't do the story. They decided that they would not go ahead with the story. And I had not seen any of those logs, really, because they didn't go ahead with what would have been the breaking story of the day. Of course, none of the Kennedys was ever publicly investigated, and Robert Kennedy would end up being assassinated, and again, if anybody would have been able to cover up this crime, yes, it would have been the President of the United States and his brother, the Attorney General. Any sort of evidence, any flight logs, anything like that, they could have shoved under the carpet, and we would have never known, and probably never will. Statistically, however, now that the Kennedy corner is done, less than 10% of all homicides, so supposedly Marilyn's death was suspicious here, might have been a murder, well, less than 10% of all homicides were believed to have been committed by a stranger. Even though Kennedys, I hear you, weren't strangers to her, they were quite distant compared to other two people in her life, whose points of view I have thrown you into. So, as we went ahead of ourselves here, basically telling you the whole story of Kennedys and how one of them might have been there on the night of Marilyn's death, let us go back into our timeline. Before Marilyn moved into Helena Drive, it's the beginning of 1962, the beginning of her last year 
of life. Marilyn would return to the public eye with a Fox production that is called Something's Got to Give in the spring of 1962. She also received a World Film Favorite Golden Globe Award. So let us talk about her personal life because this award event would actually be one of the most crucial weekends in Marilyn's life according to the book. I don't know why I just pronounced weekend like Borat. But how this fit into her personal life is that beginning of 1962, Eunice is taking over. I don't know how else to say it. Eunice is just living as her freaking shadow, but she thinks Marilyn's life is hers. What I mean by that is that Marilyn would go to Mexico yet again for a furniture shop, she would go with friends, and she was dynamic. But here, Eunice would go first. She would check out the territory, book the hotel, everything, get everything ready, including the itinerary, and then Marilyn would arrive. So Eunice was just there, I don't know, third wheeling, staying there with all of her friends, always just there in a the shadow lurking. I, I suppose it was creepy, I'm not gonna lie. I suppose she was literally just in a corner lurking like a fucking creep, not a sweet old lady. The friends would say that Eunice was simply Grinson's spy sent down to report everything that Marilyn did. Soon, even Marilyn started seeing this. So, they would have a few press conferences about something's got to give in Mexico. Both Eunice and the friends noticed that she enjoyed it, and it seemed like she would even cut like her sleeping pill dependency when she would enjoy her time. This is actually something that you will hear about her last couple of months, of life. Like, when she's good, when she's enjoying her time somewhere, she doesn't really depend on the sleeping pills, making me think she might not have even taken them every day. When she would feel good, when she would feel in control of her life, she just wouldn't take them, regardless of probably what Greenson would have said to that. Despite this trip going smoothly, and yet again, remember, it's trip to Mexico, so Hyman, whatever his last name was, Engelberg, would later say that this must have been where she had taken insane amount of drugs illegally and somehow, I don't know, hidden them from everybody. So, despite of this trip, there's Golden Globes then in March of 1962. And here, Joey had to actually get to the awards, because it was said that Marilyn was acting drunk and barely in control. As I have explained, Marilyn was not known as an alcoholic, so this is probably, again, her being back home in the custody of Eunice and Greenson and just dependent on the pills. According to the book, there were both chemical and emotional causes for this type of conduct that was out of the ordinary. She received several injections on Saturday, Sunday, and the Monday from Hyman Engelberg, vitamin shots, quote-unquote, as Eunice would call them, but clearly they were just different combinations of drugs. Among them were nembutal, seconal, and phenobarbital, or different dangerous barbiturates. And then for quick sleep, chloral hydrate. This would be known as knockout drops. These drugs would also be provided for Marilyn in capsule form by prescription, and they were not strictly controlled by the government at the time. 
To really consolidate here, based off of now-renowned pathologists and even based off of the people at the time, as to why nobody was really speaking about this and how irresponsible this was, it would have been extremely irresponsible to provide this sort of thing in the amounts that Marilyn was receiving them in, even in 1962, according to the pathologist Dr. Arnold Abrams. These were known to be toxic drugs requiring careful monitoring. This wasn't 1940, when there was far less knowledge about this type of medication. The emotional turmoil that was displayed during that award ceremony was probably because she just returned from Mexico, and this would have been her first visit to Greenson in a month. And she was cheerful when she arrived to her therapy session and was tearful and depressed after it. As for why the professional colleagues at the time wouldn't actually tell anything about Grinson or wouldn't actually ever complain, tell him anything, try to intervene, they said that everyone was experimenting with ways to treat schizophrenics. And Wexler, his supervisor, Grinson's supervisor, had his own method. This gave Grinson's treatment of Marilyn an apparent legitimacy. One of the techniques was to invite the patient into the home, not only to provide what may have been lacking earlier, but to have a constant connection so the patient would never have undue anxiety on weekends or suffer any separation trauma. Looking at it from that point of view, any sort of display of drunkenness, which we know wasn't really drunkenness, like the one on Golden Globes that year, would have probably been heavily judged by Greenson in the aftermath. But he would have probably taken it from that angle where he just would look into stronger sleeping pills, because we know that he would be increasing the dose, always looking for different type of pills, different type of thing to add to the mix. And then for her to, of course, also have the injections. So Joey was really here the only one on her side, but even from Joey's perspective, he probably thought this man is a professional. Him and Engelberg, they should know what they're doing. They should know what they're prescribing. So I should probably trust them. Like, they are the experts in this area. And then, when she would be brought home, there was Eunice, living her complete fantasy life fulfilling one another's needs, Grinson and her, him having a fantasy foster home for all those he could save, and then the nursemaid taking Marilyn as her life's mission, enabling her to be at last the unrealized successful sister, and the nurse caretaker Carolyn had become. The object of the fantasies of these two individuals, however, was actually proving to be a lot stronger than people believed. She wanted to join the president and other guests last weekend of March, and this would be at Bing Crosby's home, which we know she did, in Palm Springs, and this would be where she was said to have spent one night in president's bed. This would also be the occasion when the president would have invited her to join the Madison Square Gala to be held in May. Not only did she accept, but she says she's going to sing happy birthday to him in his honor. So, by April, she would sometimes even have counseling twice a day. And she would be eager to get back to work, but she would still have hangovers due to the amount of Nambutal pills that she was taking, and wouldn't know 
how her body even reacted to those drugs anymore. Before the gala, in May of 1962, Marilyn Wood succumbed to a sinus infection. And here, the studios had already had enough. She's costing them a lot of money for something it's got to give for this last production. And they're already on the verge of, like, are they gonna fire her or not? She had had already so many absences from filming. And Greenson won't hear of it for a different kind of reason. He would still see her twice a day, but it wasn't for him to prescribe meds for sinusitis. Rather, he gave her more meds for anxiety and depression. Because, you see, that month he actually planned to go on a five-week summer vacation, which you're like, this is great, she's gonna become independent. Well, no, because if you have learned one thing, if there is one way to control Marilyn and nothing else works, resort to drugs. So he would just prescribe her beyond her usual Nambutal. And Amitol, he would actually give her Dexamil as comfort. And he would leave her with extra supplies of this drug. As for what Dexamil is, it's the complete opposite of those drugs that are acting as calming agents. It is used for acceleration of the drug routine. And eventually, it was also removed from the drug market, like most of the drugs that Marilyn was taking, because of the difficulty of achieving the correctly balanced ratio between the two chemicals that were in it. So, what this drug did was elevate mood, and it was used in the treatment of obesity or mental depression. Just to spell that out, not only is for the first time that I have read from this book Greenson going on vacation for this long, leaving Marilyn, who is at this point seeing him twice a day, seven days a week, and living at this family, basically acting as a family member, suddenly taking a vacation, abrupt, complete disconnection from her and from therapy, but he is also leaving her in the possessions of drugs that are to bring her up and then combined with the drugs that work in the opposite way and are to bring her down. It's just so scary to me, because this isn't you and me. This is one of the biggest stars at the time, and this is how she was treated. This is what actually happened. When he was on holiday, at first, Marilyn was thriving. She even dismissed Eunice and would thrive in the studios, would actually turn up to work and be completely professional. She thought she will not miss the opportunity to sing for 15,000 people, sing happy birthday to the president. However, this must have only lasted for a couple of days, because then she would fall sick. She had sinusitis that he wasn't treating, first of all, and then also she would now be dependent on pills, because she wasn't receiving really any therapy in Greenson's absence. This meant that, again, she was showing to work here and there. There were quite a lot of absences. But despite of that, she decided on the 19th of May she was going to appear at Madison Square Garden. This was the birthday party to pay off the Democratic National Committee's deficit from the 1960 presidential campaign, and Marilyn was to come out during a music interlude. They worked around her lateness, and Peter Lawford would actually introduce her to what was believed to be 17,000 Democrats at the time as the late Marilyn Monroe. 
he was obviously referring to her always being late, but it's just, again, a bizarre twist on words, a bizarre play on words, considering that she would die later that year. Removing an ermine jacket and revealing what was described as skin and beads, she nervously began to sing Happy Birthday. After this, Marilyn would continue to sing Thanks, Mr. President, for everything you've done, the battles that you won, the way you deal with U.S. Steel, and our problems by the ton. We thank you so much. And at the end of this performance, Kennedy thanked the evening's performance, saying I can now retire from politics after having had Happy Birthday sung to me in such a sweet, wholesome way. This ceremony is now over and Marilyn has to be back on set. And here there's already so much tension on this set. It was said when she turned 36, which would have been a couple of days after that, on the 1st of June, that she had to have the whole day of work before they brought out the cake. That she basically had to work with her birthday to make up for like all of the absences that she had had. That this was only a small birthday celebration and that there was a tense energy on the set and also at the house. That during this time, Marilyn was lonely, but she told her friends that she was also enraged with Greenson and afraid of losing her job. How, how was that, gentlemen? Good. Beautiful. Good. Shooting wrapped at 5.30, and only then did Marilyn's birthday party begin. The day of her birthday, I picked up the cake, and they were screaming at me that I had to hide the cake because it wasn't going to be brought out until 6 o'clock. They had to get a full day's work out of that woman. That was the expression. The uh, assistant director, and he looked at this cake, said, well, we're having Carolyn's 36th birthday. He says, get that goddamn cake off the set till we're done shooting at 6 o'clock, then you can have her birthday party. And that was, <laughs> I mean, they were under a lot of pressure. They finally had her on the set, and they wanted to work, you know. The weekend after her 36th birthday, according to the friends, might have been actually more important as a precedent of what used to come than the weekend that Marilyn died. Early on Saturday, 2nd of June, Marilyn would make a phone call to Greenson's kids, his son and daughter, telling them to come urgently to her house. So they did, and they found Marilyn in such a confusing state. She would be giddy and disoriented at one point, and then the other moment she would be lonely and depressed. And this would be the classic signs of Dexamil overdose. The kids would organize for other doctors to come and provide sedatives to have her calm down and basically to deal with this overdose and Eunice would be by her side. But by this point, by Monday, Fox Studios were not really having it. It was the precise moment that the tensions with 20th Century Fox came to the head. Marilyn already cost them, from what I read, $2 million, so they suspended her from the picture. And this is when Greenson would be called back, because now, A, she has overdosed, and B, she has lost her job, which was just further trigger her to take more pills. Greenson therefore had to fly back to facilitate a resolution, and he wasn't really happy about it. At this point, people believe not only was this an investment for him financially, but it became a need for him, for her, to be seen as sick, dependent, and needy. And at this point, he might have been losing control and became violent. 
What was known here from the book was that he actually, Dr. Vincent, once he returned, he brought Marilyn to another doctor, Dr. Gurdin, who said that Marilyn had bruises, both black and blue marks on her lower eyelids that were clearly covered by makeup. The story that Greenson would tell this doctor was that Marilyn slipped and fell in the shower, and that she was under the influence of drugs, so she couldn't really tell this doctor what really had happened here. Dr. Gerding concluded that these injuries could have been the result of a fall. A fall or an assault would give the same type of injuries. Greenson would give out statements, to the Fox executives, determining, you know, there's nothing that you need to do, she will be able to return to filming within a week. Is it possible that Marilyn slipped in the shower, that she fell and somehow fell on her eyelids? Sure, sure. Or something that might have been more probable as an option was that Greenson was losing control that furious for her to have sabotaged his vacation, disobeyed his orders, causing him professional and personal embarrassment, he might have struck her, he might have turned violent. And as long before with Joey, where we kind of know she has had some domestic violence before, she might have just endured it, convincing herself that this is the punishment that she had deserved. Because, remember, she was seeing every single one of the men in her life as a form of surrogate father. For over a week, she would have to stay in Eunice's care at home until her bruises would heal. And Marilyn was off the movie by June the 8th. Grinson couldn't salvage this. So, Professionally, this was a failure for her. She felt like they will sue her, which they did in the end for $750,000, and she felt like she will never work in this town again. However, what the studios didn't really figure out was the height of Marilyn's career at this point, and also the publicity, even the negative publicity that this kind of hospitalization and her being taken off of the movie shoot due to her mental health issues might have caused. So, eventually, this lawsuit would have been abandoned because the execs realized losing Marilyn meant losing publicity for the movie. So, the publicity surrounding the suit led every magazine to ask for an interview or a photo shoot. And this would be the period when she would be on Vogue, then Cosmo, by 23rd of June. At this point, late in June, Fox had already reopened negotiations with Marilyn. They were already bringing her back to the shoots. However, this movie, as I mentioned, Something's Got to Give, will end up being unfinished. And you can see it as a short film, because what July brought on were more troubles sleeping. She must have thought her career was over. For someone with so much to prove, this would be devastating. This would have been the time when she would have made those eight calls with Robert Kennedy, the social, friendly calls. He might have been concerned about her health, but there was never time in Kennedy's office for them to devote lengthy calls. Phone records also confirmed that they were quite brief ones, and all of those calls were put through the main switchboard at the Department of Justice. During July, Marilyn relied on different sources to bring her energy up. 
her friends like Ralph Roberts, Ellen Snyder, and the admiration and the encouragement of Joy DiMaggio. She was actually looking forward to return to her life with him. Despite her almost daily injections at this point that Greenson made sure Hyman Engelberg was the one who was behind them, that he was the one who was prescribing everything at this point, despite of her difficulties with the sessions with Greenson and uncertainties of her future, there was just like fresh encouragement in Marilyn that summer. She was supported by her friends and she also returned to her life with Joy DiMaggio. To her friends, it looked like the meds fitted into it and that she was actually in control of her life. And they have said that in the last few months of it, of Marilyn's life, she was more optimistic than she'd been in years. So by the end of July, Marilyn realized she might not have any friends soon, as Greenson was trying to sever her relationships one by one, and when he wasn't the one doing it, Eunice was the one who was constantly at home, where Marilyn ended up bringing her friends. So as for Joey, he wanted to remarry her. They actually planned a wedding date on Wednesday 8th of August. This would only be three days after Marilyn would be found dead. So 30th of July, Marilyn starts planning a new project called I Love Louisa, and she chooses a director for it. This is how the book describes Marilyn in this period of time, when she finally realized who she was and like her own worth and how that separated her from who she was when she was with Arthur Miller and everything before that. Marilyn, on the other hand, always reaching for an integration of her personality, knew in some way that her emotional health depended on a separation between the public Marilyn and the private self. Sorrow, confusion, and neurosis prevented her rising above the image she deplored to become the woman she yearned to be. Her film roles continually forced her to rely on what she wanted to put behind her. No wonder, then, that most of all she longed to sleep. When she awoke, she was restrained, forced to assume Marilyn Monroe again, the conundrum of the sexually available, ever-popular teenage waif, who somehow retained her innocence. That her popularity was caused by an image she hated, and now, for the first time in 1962, she was openly admitting, showed how clearly she realized the split in herself. This can hardly, however, be called schizophrenic. In fact, it reveals a remarkable clarity of self-perception. But part of the problem was that part of her still depended on outer approval, still considered herself a child, only a body without a soul worth probing. And in this regard, we are very close to sounding the reasons for her mass appeal decades later. She still believed the Gladys Grey tales of family madness, and her retreat into an adopted false self was something she could not entirely abandon. Something in Marilyn still feared that she might forever sleep back to being the patronized child bride, the girl who would do best to forget her unknown lineage and assume the identity of America's ultimate pin-up darling after World War II. Morning of July the 31st, Marilyn was calling a dressmaker, like a fashion designer, who was to come over for the final fittings of her gown. She was so happy because this was to be her wedding dress. Just to put into people's minds that she really wanted to go ahead with this wedding. This wedding was to happen. 
That afternoon, she had hour and a half session with Greenson and she returned home, spent several hours on the phone, placing calls to the florist, the local wine shop, and the caterer. Again, all in terms of like her planning that wedding. Her phone records from August the 1st would indicate that she called another doctor of hers that she trusted. She wanted to have a dinner with him that evening. She told him that she's going to call him in a few hours. And then she rang him back and said she's going to call in a few days. And this reason for postponing this kind of meeting wasn't really clear. But we know that that day she went to Greenson's for a two-hour session. And she might have chosen to, you know, dismiss these dinner plans because she was exhausted, because of the injections, or maybe just because of her relationship with Eunice, who she could finally get rid of when her and Joey would to get married. There are a few reasons as to why Marilyn would have wanted to get rid of Eunice. I mean, we can think about over a hundred, but the book stays free as, like, maybe the more prevalent ones. The first one was that Marilyn's mail from Fox and from her private post box office was being held by her housekeeper. Marilyn learned of this and was reasonably so angry, because yet again she felt like a child in her own home under the supervision of her own employee. The second event was how Eunice treated the masseur, Ralph Roberts. Apparently, he turned up to give Marilyn the massage, and Eunice said, oh, I thought we had gotten rid of you. And Marilyn overheard that, and she was yet again annoyed. And then the third incident just fixed this in Marilyn's mind. Eunice planned to accompany her sister, Caroline, of course, her fave, and brother-in-law on a European vacation, beginning on Monday 6th of August. But she chose not to tell Marilyn of this and had not made any travel reservations because she was unsure about leaving Marilyn at all. This was the final straw for Marilyn, who A, didn't want her to... This was the final straw for Marilyn because she didn't want to feel this dependent on Eunice, for Eunice not to be able to take her holiday, but also she saw this finally as the opportunity. So, on 1st of August, Eunice finally told Marilyn that she would like to take a vacation. And Marilyn, thrilled at this, told Eunice not to return in September. This is the only part in today's story that makes me so, so happy. Just Marilyn taking back some of that power. Because what is trickled, unfortunately, for what is to happen, if you believe the accounts of the story represented in the book, is, well, Eunice was probably pissed. How would you feel? How would you feel? Shocked? angered, hurt. What would you feel if everything that you worked for is suddenly seeping through your hands? And what that trickled was that probably during the therapy session on 2nd of August, Marilyn must have told Greenson, well, I kind of dismissed Eunice, I told her not to return. And Greenson must have felt, well, I am next. Marilyn might have finally seen that Hollywood wasn't her whole life and that her dependence on these two individuals also wasn't her life. However, as Greenson would say, if you can't control Marilyn one way, there were always drugs. She may not have been as explicit about the termination of the relationship then, but it was clear that Marilyn Monroe was moving on. 
2nd of August ends with her going to antique collector. So Eunice is still there. And this bitch is rushing her home. She's already probably pissed with the fact that she's not returning to live Marilyn's life through her. After which Marilyn had champagne with friends at her house. Now, on the 3rd of August, as reported by the Associated Press Wire Service, Robert and Ethel Kennedy and four of their children arrived by air in San Francisco, where they were met by their good friends John Bates and his family. They would be their guests at the ranch that would be 80 miles south in San Francisco in Gilroy. And for that entire weekend, preceding the Attorney General's opening address, that was to take place on Monday, 6th of August. This would be documented by Bates, by the person hosting them, by Gilroy Dispatch, and there was no physical way he could have gone to California and returned, apart from, if you believe in the helicopter story, that there's just not really proof of. Over the span of more than 30 years, no one who was with Marilyn ever mentioned presence of Robert Kennedy even after the conspiracies. That is according to Donald Spoto and by everybody who was in the presence of Marilyn, we don't really include Eunice here because she would only give that account of events about 23 years after. As for Marilyn, the morning of 3rd of August might have been a bit different because by all accounts she hadn't taken the sleeping pills the night before. She had her appointment with Greenson, and it was said that Engelberg was waiting for her at home. Engelberg would inject her and give her the prescription for 25 Nambutal capsules. We got this in black and white. I'll put the prescription on the screen because later he's gonna lie about everything. So those were added to chloral hydrate. These would be the instant knockout pills prescribed by Greenson to wean her off the barbiturates. According to the book, there was another doctor called Lee Siegel who also wrote her prescription for an unknown quantity of Nambutal on 25th of July and then on this day, 3rd of August. Meaning that we don't really even know the precise number of pills that she was taking in the last few days of her life. The rest of the day, it was said that Marilyn kind of depended on these injections. She would have a 32-minute call where she seemed high, excited, bubbly, saying that she's feeling better than ever. Then she would speak to the handyman, dressmakers, composer for Eva Luisa, another executive. So she had reasons to be psyched and her diary was filling up and she was talking to so many people and she was planning her wedding. By the end of the day, she would have gone to a nursery for the citrus trees, again, probably for the wedding, and she was functioning soberly even after her second meeting with Greenson. In the evening, she called her publicist, Pat. They would dine out and then they would return to Helena Drive. This is when Pat would stay overnight. But this evening, Marilyn had to resort to the pills because she was struggling to fall asleep. That brings us to the 4th of August. Eunice arrived for her last day at work at around 8 a.m. and she was to be in charge of the garden plantings for that day. It was said that there was a photographer that arrived that morning and that Marilyn got up around 9 a.m. She was alert and seemingly without a care. She signed several deliveries, she spoke on the phone to some of her friends, and she even arranged a barbecue for the following evening. 
pet woke up around 12 and she would stay during the day and would even comment later how she kind of woke up and Marilyn seemed to be pissed because she didn't sleep enough, but it just didn't seem that that was the main reason for the anger. Maybe it was the dynamics with Eunice. Pat just couldn't really tell what the hell was causing this level of anger. Greenson would arrive on the 4th of August at around 1 p.m. And apart from a break between 3 p.m. and 4.30 p.m., Greenson would stay at Helena Drive until 7 p.m. Joey Jr., so Joey DiMaggio's son, would actually call between 1 and 3 p.m. At some point he called and Eunice answered, telling him that she's not at home. But she was. She was at home and she was having therapy session with Greenson. The break between 3 and 4, in particular after which Greenson would return, was because Eunice drove Marilyn to Peter Lawford's house, so to Santa Monica house, and in that hour Eunice went out to shop for groceries, and then she would return to pick Marilyn up. It was said by the time she reached the beach, something changed, and Marilyn just seemed drugged. She just wasn't too steady on the sand. And as the autopsy would later reveal, at the time of Marilyn's death, she would have a high dose of nebutal in her liver, for which several hours of accumulation would be required. So that would explain that she probably had some drugs in her system already. Reasons for her to have taken more drugs than prescribed, probably, would have been Eunice, the atmosphere at home, maybe the stress because of no sleep, just the eagerness and the nerves about the marriage. However, whatever the reasons were, she gets back into the car and is driven home after spending only an hour at Lawford's Beach that afternoon. She leaves the beach around 4. And then at 4.30 she is at home, again at Helena Drive. Joey Jr. calls again and Eunice again tells him that she is not there. At 5 o'clock Marilyn actually takes the phone call and she is speaking to Peter Lofer that she had apparently just seen about an hour ago. Peter tried to invite her for dinner that Saturday and Marilyn declined, but Peter said like, okay, I'm gonna call again, maybe you'll reconsider. Apparently she was completely lucid during this phone call, even though about like an hour and a half ago she wasn't. But what baffles me here is that nobody focuses on what happened during that hour between 3 and 4. Why did she go to his beach house in the first place? Just randomly for an hour during the day? Why didn't he invite her for dinner then and there when he had her present? Was it because she wasn't lucid enough? It's just nobody really explains this part of the story. She would have two other calls. Well, rather, Eunice again responded that Marilyn was dressing when Isador Miller, Arthur Miller's dad, called, and the second one was from Ralph Roberts around 5.45 p.m. And Ralph said that Greenson was the one that answered here, because he was back at Marilyn's, and Greenson said that she wasn't there and immediately hung up. He might have hung up, expecting a call from Engelberg, who he expected to come and provide Marilyn with meds. Most likely this would have been another injection to help her sleep. And apparently he tried reaching to Engelberg earlier 
and Engelberg was going through a divorce at that point, so he just refused to come over. And at this point, apparently, he refused again. So, at 7 or 7.15 p.m., Greenson claimed that he left Helena Drive and that Marilyn stayed with Eunice. According to the book, shortly after this, the inconsistencies begin. And I'm here to say this whole day is inconsistent as hell. Like, a lot of things just do not make sense to me in terms of just the phone calls that were happening at that house. Greenson would say that he asked Eunice to stay overnight. Remember, this is this woman's last day at work. And she will say later she has never been before asked to stay overnight. So, reasoning for him was that he didn't want Marilyn to be alone. Which was weird. It was her last day at work. Why suddenly you don't want her to be alone? There would be two other calls that Marilyn would actually answer herself that evening, according to the callers behind them. So, first one was from Joey Jr. Finally, he actually reached through to Marilyn, and he was trying to call her to tell her that he broke off his engagement. This would be a phone call she would receive around 7.15, and Joey Jr. said that she was in quite good spirits. The second call was from Peter Lawford, who called her again, still hoping to get her to come out for a dinner party. This would be around 7.40, and Peter would say that he had a completely different impression. He was speaking to a completely different Marilyn. He said that her voice was slurred, that she was distressed, and that he even shouted her name a few times. And she finally kind of came to her senses for a couple of seconds. And what she said was, Say goodbye to Pat. Say goodbye to the president. And say goodbye to yourself, because you're a nice guy. Then she whispered, I'll see you, I'll see you, and then just stayed silent. So, thinking that she hung up, Peter tried calling again for about half an hour. But he hears the blocked line ring, so he asked the operator to interrupt the conversation, and he was told that the phone was off the hook or out of order. So, Peter starts being concerned, and within reason, as according to the coroner, in less than half an hour, something horrible happened to Marilyn. She was laughing and chatting to Joey DiMaggio's son, and then within 30 minutes, she was dying. It is that time again, unfortunately. Oh, God, I get goosebumps every freaking time, but I have done it with the Lost Girls of Panama, so I'm going to do it here again. We have two timelines to talk about. One of them, where Marilyn had been found dead earlier in the evening, before midnight. And in the other timeline, she had been found dead around 3 o'clock in the morning by her housekeeper. So, to finish this parter off, let us dive into these timelines. And then, in the next parter, we're going to finish them off and see why one of them might make more sense than the other. Something to bear in mind as we are going into these timelines are the coroner's findings. Marilyn's time of death would be between 8.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. on August the 4th. And a toxicology report would show that the cause of death was acute barbiturate poisoning. She had 8 milligrams of chloral hydrate, 4.5 milligrams of nembutal in her blood, 
and 13 milligrams of nembutal in her liver. Supporting the early timeline, upon that weird call that Peter had just had with Marilyn, he was alarmed, so he started calling his friends. And these friends would advise him not to go over as his president's brother-in-law, and if he does, it will end all over the headlines. So the friends that he called, one of them was Milton Ebbins, that we spoke about earlier on, the talent manager, the Rat Pack insider. So, according to Ebbins, Peter told him, like, let's go there, let's go right away, but Ebbins said, Peter, don't do it, you're the president's brother-in-law. I'll tell you, let me call Mickey Rudin, and if he says so, then you can go, because otherwise, if you go, you're really opening a can of worms. Rudin would be Marilyn's attorney, so he'd be a lawyer, so again, he'd know what needs to be done. Rudin is Greenson's brother-in-law, if I remember right, I'll put it on the screen. From everything I remember, Rudin might have been one of the people recommending Greenson to Marilyn, if you remember from earlier on. Ebbins calls Rudin at his office at 8.25 p.m. He figures out that Rudin is at a party. He reaches him at this party. Rudin is thinking, you know, I don't want to bother Greenson, he has been there the whole day, so let's bother the housekeeper, you know, she should know, it's not like she was there the whole day, but sure. Rudin reaches Eunice, the housekeeper, at about 8.30, and this would be in the room at the guest cottage, so at the house, but at the guest cottage. And after asking her to check on Marilyn, he said he waited for about four minutes, and then she came back to him and said she's fine. But Rudin had a feeling that she never just went or checked or anything, that there was no time for her to just go and check. She also didn't say that she went to the door, that she knocked, called out, nothing like that. So Rudin then calls Ebbins, who calls Lawford, and they are now just prolonging what could have been like the shortest drive ever to actually check up on Marilyn. And what I don't understand is like this is a lot more incriminating than Lawford just getting into his car and driving over to Marilyn's. And this would be his account of events. I don't know what you think about that, but I'm like, all of them are in Kennedy's pocket, in his corner, in a way, and this is the story that they have decided to sell? Why? Why? If this is true, like, it's so much more suspicious than, like, them just not involving one another. By this point, it's already 11 p.m., and Peter Lawford, he had gone out for dinner, by the way. He just, he was so stressed, but he had gone out for dinner. So, he calls Joey Nar, who is another talent agent who lived half a mile away, but just as they want to go, Ebbins calls him back, saying that Greenson gave her the sedatives and that she was resting. Ebbins would continue to keep people away from Marilyn's house, and Lowford would repeatedly sound the alarm. This would be until 1.30, when Lowford would finally actually get a phone call from Ebbins, who heard the news from Rudin. According to what Lowford would hear during that phone call, Rudin phoned Ebbins at exactly that time, so 1.30, from Fifth Helena, from Marilyn's house, where Rudin and Greenson, so the lawyer and the therapist, found Marilyn dead at midnight. 
And Lawford knew of this time, like when the phone call happened at 1.30, because he glanced at the bedside clock. According to Rudin, she was dead before midnight because he recalls getting a call from Greenson. Rudin, upon receiving this phone call from his brother-in-law Greenson, saying that Marilyn was dead, immediately got upset and drove to the scene. Okay, so to recap this, because there's a lot of fucking names, so I noted it down in a way where, like, it's the easiest to explain. Greenson was called long before midnight. By whom? Most probably Eunice. Who else was at that house? He alerted the attorney, Rudin. Rudin phones the Red Pack insider, Ebbins, and as they were headed there, Ebbins calls Lowford to let him know that all of this had happened, that Greenson was there, that he alerted Rudin, who alerted Ebbins, and then Ebbins finally alerted Lowford. Yet again, why is this the story that Lawford is telling? Like, it's making, it's implicating a ton of people. However, if this is to be believed, Marilyn was dead, and she was discovered dead before midnight. This brief time span during which Marilyn's death must have occurred is even made narrower because of yet another phone call. So this is a completely separate thing, and that's why I'm only including it now. However, it is included in the book. And this phone call was made to Arthur Jacobs, rather to his wife. Arthur Jacobs was a press agent. He was in charge of Marilyn's publicity between 1955 and all the way up until her death. I haven't found anything shady on the guy. It seems like he worked with her on the Marilyn Monroe productions as well. So, I'm not really sure why, but he was one of the people who received this phone call on that evening. Arthur's wife would say they were attending the concert that evening, and at about 10 or 10.30, someone came to their box and said, come with us right now, please, Mr. Jacobs, Marilyn Monroe is dead. She said that she doesn't know why, but she has the distinct impression that it was Mickey Rudin who called Arthur at the ball, and that him, Rudin, had been called by Greenson from Marilyn's house. So that matches Lawford's account of events in terms of Rudin being at the house and him being alerted first by Greenson. However, if this account of events is correct, if Arthur Jacobs went in to Helena Drive at 11 p.m., and in the later timeline, the housekeeper, Eunice Murray, would say that she found Marilyn dead at 3 a.m., what was going on at that house between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m.? Now, for the late timeline, because these reports, as suspicious and as implicating of so many people, fully contradict the entire official report on Marilyn's death, which would fully depend on Greenson and Eunice's version of events. So, Eunice's version of events is a lot more simpler. I'm not gonna say it doesn't involve this many names. It is... Simple and straightforward. At around 9 p.m., Marilyn decides she's gonna go to bed. She says, good night, Miss Murray, and she just closes the door. This is going to be brought into speculation because, as we know from her stay in that padded room at Patty Whitney, Marilyn would never lock her doors. Maybe close them? However, the door would never be locked. 
this is gonna come into question in a minute and something that pains me is like from all of the pictures that I have seen from Marilyn's house, let's not call it scene of the crime, let me not like implicate myself or anything like that, but I can't see the inside of the door. So I see the outside and there is a clear lock. So I think the door can be locked from the outside, which is so, so creepy. However, I can't see the inside of it to confirm whether there is even a lock. According to the book, she would not have locked the door. And also it seems like there was not a possibility for the door to be locked. Why I'm saying this is because out of nowhere, Eunice woke up at 3 a.m. and she's like, you know what, I feel something is wrong. My maternal instinct is telling me to check on Marilyn. For the reasons that she could not understand, she woke up at 3 a.m. and she noticed a light under the door of Marilyn's room. She tried to open the door, found it locked, and then at that point she decided to phone Grinson. Greenson, even before arriving to the scene, instructed her to take a poker, then go outside the house and part the curtains through the open grill-covered front casement window to see if Marilyn is asleep and if she is well. Eunice does as she is told, of course, and when she breaks the window with the poker and then parts the curtains, she sees that Marilyn is lying nude and motionless on the bed. She then goes back onto the phone and panically reports this to Greenson. At this point, Greenson rushes over and using the fire iron, breaks the second unbarred window, which would be at the side of the house, which he unlatched and then climbed into Marilyn's bedroom. A moment after, he unlocks the bedroom door from within to admit Eunice and he tells her, we've lost her. Grinson would have reached the house at around 3.30. So at about 3.50, he phones Engelberg, Hyman, and Hyman would arrive to the scene to pronounce Marilyn dead. Only then, only after that happened, at 4.25, the two doctors called the police, who arrived at the house in about 10 minutes. Marilyn came to her bedroom door. I was sitting in the living room. And she said, uh, good night, Mrs. Murray. I think I'll turn in now. And she closed the door. Later that evening, Marilyn placed a call to Peter Lawford. She bid a cryptic goodbye to his wife and President Kennedy. Although Lawford was concerned about Marilyn, he did not rush to her side. Peter Lawford got a call from Marilyn. And she was mumbling. Apparently she was going under from the pill she took and perhaps was calling in as, as a cry for help. He didn't run over. He called, he was the one who then called Mickey Rudin to tell Mickey Rudin that he'd had this call and Marilyn sounded funny and with Mickey check and that's when Mickey called the housekeeper. At approximately 10 p.m., Marilyn's attorney, Mickey Rudin, called Eunice Murray. Mrs. Murray assured him Marilyn was fine. But about five and a half hours later, at around 3.30 a.m., Mrs. Murray awoke, alarmed to find the light still on in Marilyn's bedroom. I went around to the front of the house, turning the curtains back. I saw Marilyn lying on the bed, nude, and I was just alarmed. Dr. Greenson got there first. She was dead when he got there. And I went into the bedroom, made sure. 
sure she was dead. There was some rigor mortis, yes, but it wasn't extreme yet. I suspected that she'd been dead at least a few hours. There are a couple of holes in Eunice's story, as simple as it might appear. One of them was that the light would shine under the door. There was a deep pile white carpeting that was recently laid in Marilyn's bedroom, and it was said that it was so thick that for two weeks it had prevented the door from being fully closed, which it could not be until a slightly pressed arc was worn into the carpet, so no light could be seen underneath the door. Eunice would later amend her account, saying that she became alarmed when she noticed the phone cord leading under the doorway. I'm gonna put the only picture of this that I have seen online, and it involves a phone cord, and also I can kind of see the light a bit, or maybe this is the reflection of the carpet. It's just a bad picture, and nobody has taken any more pictures of this, or like underneath of the door. Another issue in her story was that there was never an operating lock on her door. As I mentioned, I have seen the outside of it, I don't think anybody has ever bothered to take the pictures from the inside of it, which is just shitty, shitty police work. What these flaws in this account of events would indicate to many people is that Marilyn never locked the door, meaning that this whole break-in was staged. The window coverings also confirm this story. So, if you look at the pictures on the screen, yes, they did break this window. However, from the only picture I could find, it also seems like a blackout curtains, but that there is not really like the middle parting. So, the story of her breaking the window and then like parting the curtains with a poker and then seeing Marilyn on the bed would have been incorrect. Also because of the angle where this window was. So from how I picture this, Marilyn's bed is like in the corner of the room. So with how this mirror had been broken in the middle and then like them parting the curtains that don't have the partings, Okay, first of all, there's no partings, right? So the only way would have been to break this window maybe completely and then with the poker take the curtain from the corner in order to see Marilyn's bed that was in the corner of that room, if that makes any sense. But the window coverings were also blackout fabric, not draperies, so there was no overlap for Eunice to push aside with the poker. According to the first police officer that was on the scene also, Eunice said that she called Grinson at midnight. And then, by late Sunday morning, when more police officers came, she changed up her story, saying that she called him at 3 a.m. when she'd first discovered what was going on, like when she saw the light, later the cord underneath the door. Something that is another bizarre thing and that I have really tried looking into here, what would have confirmed this story would be the phone records. From what I could find, Marilyn's phone records would be incomplete. They would show outgoing, but not her incoming calls, according to the 1982 DA's report. Now, that means that all of those calls from Lawford, Joy Jr., and others couldn't be corroborated, because they would be the incoming calls to her house. However, as they could check for the outgoing, well, that's probably why we have the police one at 425. But also, 
meaning that we have to trust Lofer's words and the words of everybody who called in, but also meaning that we would have the time of the call to the police, but still we don't have the answers to the questions. How did Eunice call the doctor and when? Like, is that not confirmed by the logs? Did she call him from a different phone in the house? Like, do they not have those logs if we have the outgoings? Like, I could never find, like, a document, you know, stating all of the calls that were made that would confirm Eunice's story. Did she call him at midnight? Did she call him at 3 a.m. when she discovered Marilyn? It could be easily confirmed. And then why? Why did it take them so long to call the police, even though Grinson was, by all accounts, alerted by 3.30. Why did they have to call another doctor to declare her dead? So the question that I have for you, based off of the time of death, if Marilyn died between 8.30 and 10.30, and then this is when the phone calls would have been made, if that is correct, to Arthur Jacobs, who was at the theater, what was happening at that house between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m.? And... If you don't believe in the earlier timeline, then what was happening in that house between 3.50, when Dr. Engelberg was called, when he arrived on the scene, pronounced her dead, and 4.25 a.m. Because there are just unexplained gaps in time that make people believe that somebody was trying to cover up something. So the earlier timeline matches what Lowford was told by Ebbins and would explain time of death but would also give ample time for a cover-up. And the later timeline would give ample time for cover-up just of different individuals in this case. Grinson told the police the same story as Eunice, but Grinson's story never changed, mostly because he just wouldn't be interviewed. Like, I could not find a single interview with Grinson, and he also never wrote a book on it. Both of them failed to mention another person close to Marilyn, Rudin, on the scene, which would further ruin their credibility, but also Rudin was only on the scene if the earlier timeline is correct. He doesn't really fit into the scene in this later timeline. Now, the weakness of the official version of the events resulted in multiple conspiracy theories, including plots and a government-inspired murder. The psychiatrist and the housekeeper would always escape scrutiny. He, because of his career, and she, by and she by calculated public image of a dear little old lady. But as the histories of these two that we spoke about and their actions were revealed to the public, and as the coroner's report would soon confirm, Eunice Murray and Ralph Greenson had something to hide. The question is, were they hiding information to protect themselves or because they didn't act on their own? And that is where we will pick this story up in part three. So next time, we are going to pick up from right here with the coroner's report, with the investigation, or rather the lack thereof, really, the autopsy report, what could have possibly happened that evening and where the book ends, like the conclusions that the author of the book had made on Ralph and Eunice. We will follow up with the inquest and the investigation from the 80s, and then the conspiracy theories through decades. As I know, there are other avenues I haven't mentioned yet, 
like the mafia and then I also found the FBI files on Marilyn online so I'm going to read through them in order for you not to have to and then try to summarize it for you. I'll try to do the same thing with the point of view here and put you in the shoes of either the coroner or the police officer have decided yet and then of the people believing in each conspiracy theory to make it more fun but also for you to see what story might make the most amount of sense. However, what I would love to know is what are your thoughts so far? Like, I'm aware that the book is biased towards these two individuals, Greenson and Murray, but also I think you can see why. We mentioned in part one Natasha acting as a savior, saving her from a suicide attempt, then in this part are how people would find her overdosing, her being hospitalized by Chris, so do you think that there is a chance that Marilyn overdosed on her own accord, based off of the information that you have now? And I will just let you know, personally, I don't think that Marilyn committed suicide, but to find out why, you'll have to join me next time. And you will not have to wait for long when you join me, because it will be explained to you in the first, like, 10 minutes of the video, because we will dive straight in, pick up where we are leaving it off with me explaining why or why not might the author of the book be right based off of the psychology of these two individuals whose points of view I have put you in. I feel filthy. I hate every single person in Marilyn's life, maybe like a couple of individuals where I'm like, I hate you a bit less, but a lot of them just exploited her and wanted something from her and it is truly yet again ending this video saying how sad that is and just how insane it is that somebody with that status like again not you and me was in the hands of people who were not professionals was in the hands of people who were like not qualified to be in those professions just so scary so so scary that I didn't know this at all until diving deep into this case. Well, let me know your thoughts. What was my voice today? It's great. I love this for me. And uh, I am going to edit this video for you now and then start diving into those FBI files and uh, just researching for part three. Is it gonna be shorter? You promised you shorter videos. You literally said like it's gonna be under two hours. It's not gonna be under two hours. Why do you lie to people, my? Why do you lie to people? Because I, I do crunching deep noise. I need to get to the bottom of it all. Cool, cool, cool. How's that going for you mentally? <laughs> I'm out. Make sure you like and subscribe and share this with others and other deep dives on this channel. Cool? Cool. You'll do it, right? It's <laughs> like a desperate look. And look of a desperate, desperate person. No, I'm just sweating and dying. Okay, now, bye guys. Shall I open the window? How, um, just exactly how bad was the sound on this one? Because, um, there's like a scaffolding here. Scaffolding? <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. You pronounced so many words wrong today. So many words. I had to Google how to pronounce Doheny Drive, okay? I thought it was Doheny or Doheny, you know? Immigrant problems. I'm immigrant. Get me out of here. No, I actually don't. I really thought to stay in this country, so please don't. Shut up. Editing Maya on, goodbye, Maya out, Maya gonna shape her legs. Bye guys, bye. <laughs>